Welcome to Parenthood Pals. I'm Caleb Hoyer. And I'm Melissa Fight Johnson. And today, oh my gosh, everyone, we have our last guest ever. 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 Oh my God. <laughs> and it seems appropriate that it's my husband, Mark Johnson. Yay. Yay. Like, Is this where I talk? Yeah. <laughs> um, I didn't realize this was the last episode with a guest. I feel very pressured and like I need to go take a break now. Okay. Yeah. Well, you've been working really hard, so yeah. I think a break in the let, first 30 seconds is wise. Uh-huh, and let you work on my <laughs> intro a little bit more so I can come in with some pizzazz on this last final guest spot that That's... I have. Is this like Letterman situation? Am I Dave Grohl right now? Yeah. Yeah. You are about to sing Everlong. And... <laughs> That's how this is going to go down. You're not only our last guest ever, you are our first five-timer. One, two, three, four, five. Man. I mean, that really so is like is a Is there SNL. like a jacket or a championship belt, preferably, or There's like nothing. a tattoo? <laughs> but our undying gratitude and admiration. There is that. Undying. Maybe. <laughs> Undying. Like Edward the Vampire. <laughs> um, so maybe we all get like five timer tattoos, although you guys have, <gasps> are how many timers? How many have you We got? are a hundred and four <laughs> timers or something. So if we got tally Sorry. marks, I could get my tally marks and then go have a, a snack while you guys get the rest of yours. Yeah, that would take up a lot of space on our bodies. And I'm not going to do that. (laughs) Maybe that's the thing that was never announced is that every guest on here gets a tattoo commiserate with the amount of times that they were on the show. Yeah, we forgot to tell anyone that. (laughs) Um, They're going to be surprised. Yep. All right. But everyone's going to do it. (laughs) (laughs) They will. They will. Uh. So Mark was last on for episode 511, Promises. And that was in the summer of 2022. So Mark, what's been new since last summer? Oh. I know what you did last summer, our podcast. Well, you did. (laughs) Yeah. You do know what I did for like four days last summer because you were there. That's Um, right. That's true. I was. Yeah. That was Uh, wonderful. What has happened? I mean, I I don't know. You know, I feel, I often feel like when people ask me that, I have a lot to say, but nothing to say at all. And uh, I feel very busy, but also, I don't know. You know, it's been good, right? It's been good. It's been real good. Yeah. Yeah. We've got these dogs, you know, they're still around, everything. We've lost like maybe five guppies since then. That's not bad. That's a good count for death count for guppies and um you know we have a super bowl that, that oh, yeah. the Chiefs just won that's exciting for mark johnson and um i don't know life in lawrence is pretty good yeah i, I think we've you know haven't had a whole lot of drama or issues or our lives are low on that's drama. good in real life people don't want drama that's right yeah that's why we watch the shows yeah um yeah to get i remember i had a teacher once who i worked with who would tell his students only actors want to cry? That's a very good point. Yeah, and it's yeah. true. I think in real life you correct. usually uh, avoid tears as much as you can. <laughs> as much as you can. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think generally just good. You know, if if uh, we needed to get specific, I could, but I don't have anything to complain about. Yeah. We we go to concerts and movies, and we yeah, work we've real hard. A lot of movies. A lot of movies. You guys do a weekly movie date usually, right? Usually, it averages out. Yeah. Uh, to about one a week, yeah. A couple weeks ago, we saw three in a week. It was a little, a wow. little nuts, yeah. And we and go. And is it usually at Liberty Hall, correct? 
Yeah. More often than not, yeah. Yeah. We also Lawrence's have the... Art House Cinema. Ugh, yeah. We're kind of regulars there, which makes me really happy. Like we go in there and they know us and they like get our little concession order ready and make like lovely small talk, like the kind that you really miss during the pandemic when you weren't seeing people, you know, it's just like yeah. the, the kind that just make you feel like you belong to a community. It's really nice. So. Well, I love that. Yeah. It's pretty good. I agree. Well, we're thrilled to have you back, Mark. For yeah. the penultimate episode. Oh man, what a word! Yeah, I'm I'm thrilled to be here. It's it's exciting. Yeah, um, I'm happy for you guys. You did it. Thank you. And or thank you, you almost done it. We've almost done. Thank you for giving us the idea. Have we ever properly thanked you? That's on, true. On thank the you. Um, I don't know if you have, but you know you're welcome. <laughs> and um, I'm I'm glad. I I think it's. It's uh, it's been a really good run. How many years has it been? Is it is it going on three? It's like two and a half, wow. I think. Yeah, total. Yeah. So we started in mid to late summer twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. Wow. We started releasing them in September of twenty twenty. Yeah, and you know some husbands might have walked through while we were watching TV shows over Zoom and said, "Man, you guys really yakety yak it up. I wish you'd <laughs> knock it off." Yeah, I do. Use and that instead, term. you said. <laughs> Wow, you guys have really interesting conversations. Yeah. Well, you do. And like when we're in New York, you know, you'll be just talking on a subway like nobody else is there. And while I play Panda Pop or whatever it is that I'm playing. And um, those conversations are good, too. But I think those Zoom conversations were were hitting at something that everybody kind of needed to get to in the household and in your household, just being vulnerable and kind of facing up to things. So you guys are great. Thank, and, you. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, this is this is exciting. I'm so proud of you for finishing it out. I think uh, to your point of, you know, some people would do one, you know, once we were through the part of the pandemic where we're inside and we actually have have to plan around your life again, um, it would be easy to drop this. So it's really cool that you've kept it going and you're going to finish it out. Thank you. Thank you. I'm proud. I'm proud of you. Thank you yeah. so much, babe. All right. Well, shall we do it to it, Kathy Pruitt? Ah, call back, call back. Call Let's back. Do it. <laughs> okay. We are discussing Parenthood Season 6, Episode 12, We Made It Through the Night. It was written and directed by Jason Kadams. It originally aired on January 22nd, 2015. Here's the TV Guide synopsis. Amber has labor pains and rushes to the hospital. Meanwhile, Camille and Zeke make a decision regarding Zeke's health. Sarah shares some happy news with Zeke, and Adam takes a firm stance as he and Crosby disagree over business matters. So, in this episode's... Roll call! (laughs) No Jabbar, no Drew. Hmm, Everyone else is present and accounted for. Wow. It's the Royal Rumble of (laughs) parents. Hey, real quick. That roll call thing, is that from Hairspray? Yeah. We just saw hairspray. Like and huh. they and they did it. They were like roll call and I was like, "Oh my god, that's that's where Caleb's gotten that." <laughs> that's really funny. <laughs> and, it's, and it's a roll call. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Well, I thought we would start with Joel and Julia. Yeah. They break the news to their kids that they're back together in case the ice skating didn't make it clear. <laughs> So dad's moving back in? That's right. Moving back in. It's going to be just like it was. Finally! Oh, hey, Victor, I understand if this is a lot to process. It's... You're moving back in? Forever? Yes. It's permanent. Yeah. 
How can you be so sure? What? How do you know? Well, we talked about that a lot, actually, mm -hmm. and and we wanted to make sure. And when Absolutely. it comes right down to it, we just we just love each other, and so. And we've always loved each other, you know, even even when we had our problems. So what happens when the next problem comes up? What happens when you guys fight? And what? When your 11-year-old son understands more about marriage than you do after, like, 13 years of it, maybe you need to do a little more talking. When she says, we talked about that a lot, and it boils down to, we just, uh, like, love each other. Like, how much did you talk if that's the only conclusion you arrived at? Anyway, what did you think? I was totally with Victor. I'm like, I, I would be so skeptical after, you know, like, like, what are you telling me that's new here? What have you worked through? Not that they necessarily <laughs> owe their son an explanation, but maybe they do, actually. I don't know. But for them to just be like, yeah, it's because we decided. And it's like, yeah, last year you decided not to, <laughs> you know, it would just that's what I would think. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think the subtext of what Victor was asking, too, is what happens when the next, you know, average kind of like mildly attractive, if that man comes along <laughs> and breaks up your marriage, how are you going to withstand yeah. this this thing? And also, I mean, I, I'm not in on the show like you are, but I feel like there is some gaslighting that's went on between these two. Because when the last time I checked in with their relationship, it was more Julia's fault than anybody. And now all of a sudden we got her husband and he's, he's on the hook now. I'm like, why is he on the hook again? Because I feel like he's always been around doing the right thing, pulling this Braverman through. And... Uh, <laughs> And now we have, uh, now he's the one that's on the defense with old young Victor. So I don't know. I just feel like I've missed something uh, along the way. Well, you didn't miss anything that we didn't all miss. Because <laughs> we feel the same. it did take a turn at some point. And I, I think Joel just decided to like take the blame for yeah. everything in order to get it back. He's like, well, it doesn't matter what you did. I left. And which I take some issue with because I don't think that's true. And I also wonder if he really believes that. I will say I was happy in this episode to see them immediately struggling again. Yeah. Because their resolution in the previous episode felt so sudden and so tidy. Yeah. That I was just like, really? And so to even have it counterbalanced at all was welcome to me it's like yeah it would be awkward to like put your stuff back in the drawer and tell your kids and now she's getting a phone call from chris it's not just some abstract concept that you agree to and i thought the new underwear part was a really effective piece because it's just like a subtle change but it points to something that happened yeah when he wasn't around that he has no control over and it is um obviously going to be one of the things that's going to be a problem between them but it, it was not overt. And I thought I, th I just thought it was a nice uh, device to use. And it felt very real to me. It just felt very real, um, very yeah. awkward. And it opened up some of the topics that they really do have to, I think, discuss head on. I'm sorry that it's Chris, but, you know, I slept with people, you slept with people. Let's just, who cares? Let's go. Let's... Wait. <laughs> Wait, what? What do you mean? People. I mean, you slept with... Okay. I did not 
mean to have, we're, we don't have time okay. for this conversation right, right now. Right, but how many people? <laughs> Joel. I'm uh, no, sorry, I'm. It's, no, it's okay. just. Well, just for the record, I didn't, I didn't sleep with people. That's, all right, we're not having this conversation right now. I'm sorry I brought it up. Okay. We can have this conversation later. You better. Oh, that's heartbreaking. <laughs> like, I just think, you slept with people, I slept with people, and he's like, I did not. <laughs> yeah. First of all, back to your point earlier about Joel has just assumed the blame. I do feel like with a person like Julia, that's what he's going to have to do, right? This is obviously, this is another one of those uh, one-sided Julia chats is let's, let's talk about it. Never mind, let's don't talk about it. Also, if Joel, I feel like Julia could be in relationships and really not maintain those relationships. I think if Joel as a character was with someone uh, even one person, I don't know that Julia is going to get him back. <laughs> so, <laughs> like if he has a taste of he's a damn other people? No, because he's a winner. Yeah. He's a winner. Yeah. He's a winner. He's I mean, maybe, yeah, he's a catch. And uh, it's probably just best that that's, <laughs> it would be hard to believe that if he was, in, I mean, he's pretty coveted throughout the show, right? He had several run-ins with these Raquel, Pete, yeah. that's maybe it, but. I do think like random women we would see like other moms at the school would have crushes on him and stuff like or or didn't like a bunch of moms tell Julia once we could talk about all the teachers who have crushes on Joel. I think that was one Joel. of my episodes. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think it was. Yeah. yeah. And so I think you're right that Raquel and Pete are the only ones that were like by name or like significant. But it is significant, I think. I mean, I know that Raquel kisses him. And we kind of discussed the similarities, compared and contrasted that to Julia's kiss with Ed. But like, that's it. He never does cheat. He, you know, he's got that line in season two where he's like, I will never cheat on you. And he doesn't. And even when they're separated, he doesn't sleep with anyone. And I, I, I guess I wonder what made Julia feel like that was something she wanted to explore while she was heartbroken and said she was heartbroken and why it was something that Joel didn't feel he needed to explore. Like, I'm genuinely curious what the difference is. Well, and it makes me, what my question was, does it feel kind of unfair or like puritanical that Joel comes out looking like a saint because mm. he didn't sleep with other people while they were separated? Great question. And I'm not sure because I don't think Julia did anything wrong. I think they no. were on a break. Yeah. I mean, to borrow a, <laughs> another show's phrase. Yeah. But I don't think the issue feels irrelevant. Yeah. Like, I think they need to talk about it. I think he needs to know and what she has done and she needs to know what he has done. But then I feel like I'm judging her for having sex and admiring him for not. When I think it was maybe just she felt like it was something she wanted to experience. He didn't. Yeah. Different I, strokes. I, I think to me it feels a little bit unfair just because it was her actions that led to them. Even though he's the one that left, it's her actions and kind of her lack of ability to take responsibility for her actions that led to it, right? I mean, am I wrong on in that? In our opinion, yes. So, yeah. And, and then to lead to the, you know, to go further to say, like, he didn't even, he wasn't even in a relationship. And, I mean, if he wanted to be, he could have been. But to me, it's not the act itself. It's just kind of when you look at the whole story from a bird's eye view, it's just super unfair to Joel, I think. It's just, and I don't, I don't blame her for doing her thing, but I also wonder if what that conversation would be like if his character had slept with other people. Yeah. I think here's what I judge. I think it's not, yeah, I agree with, 
I don't think she did anything wrong. If you're separated, you're separated, sure. But I do think it's interesting, like, how you spend your time apart as far as, like, she said she loved him and that she didn't want a divorce. But instead of, like we've said, like, reflecting on what she could have done, like, her part that she played in it, I think she just kind of chased distractions a little bit instead of, like, working on herself. Now, and we're saying that when things got hard for her in her relationship, she didn't she sleep with one of uh, Max's teachers? Yeah, that was after Joel said so, that I mean, they were never, seeing other people. This has never happened before, though, right? It's a bravery. <laughs> I see what you're saying. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes, good call. I good just call. feel like maybe, you know, there's some... I'm talking about Crosby, okay? I'm talking about Crosby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They even alluded to that because Sarah said it was Adam and Christina's fault. They needed to stop hiring such attractive people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, don't worry. They've both disappeared off the face of the earth. But well, Gabby right. and Evan, we don't know where they you are. You know, I hope they're together somewhere. <gasps> and I hope they're really happy. Yes, that is what I hope for. Yeah. Yeah. Gabby and Evan. Yeah. And you know, they should be writing Chambers Academy. Yes, they should. I was going to say, if all else fails, if you just can't keep a good teacher around because your siblings keep sleeping with them, just start your own school and excel at it where public schools fail. But I'm I'm imagining we're going to be talking about that. Yeah. Yeah. Can't wait. (laughs) Well, there is one scenario between Joel and Julia that hadn't occurred to me until this episode. It's... Not a full-fledged theory, but let's see what you think. Okay. It, I, it occurred to me after this scene. We have to talk about our stuff. We have to talk about my job and Chris. And... Okay. I just don't want to... You saw how upset Victor was. I don't want to argue. I don't want him to hear us arguing. I just... Okay, I don't... I don't know. We can't just let it fester. We have to get it out. Okay, well, then I don't want to talk about it. I'm, I don't want to argue. Understand? I don't want to. I just moved back. I don't want to bring that back into this house. I'm too. I'm too scared to argue. Well, I'm too scared not to argue. So I felt like maybe this hinted at a dynamic that they could have explored more, and I think would have made the conflict feel more balanced. And or maybe it was there all along, and I just missed it. Julia, for all her faults always seems very direct and very willing to go right to the heart of a matter. And Joel, at least in comparison, feels a little emotionally avoidant. Mm-hmm. And certainly in that scene, she says, I want to talk about this stuff. And he says, I don't. Yeah. It scares me too much. Let's just forget it. That's not good. No. And I think she's right. And then I thought, case. like, you know, well, she wanted to go to counseling and he just wanted to move out. Yeah. Like, is that maybe just... the most extreme example of that yeah uh but okay and and not to just take joel's side all the time but it seems to me like julia is doing things and then joel is the one that feels something like joel's not really doing much so what they're talking about is joel's feelings about julia mostly being attracted to other men right which is not an easy thing (laughs) to talk about Am I, am I missing a point here? I mean, I feel like that's like what they're talking about is Julia doing things while Joel kind of sits around and feels jealous or feels whatever it is that he's feeling, feels uncomfortable. But a lot of the, the talks wouldn't really be about Joel. And I think that it's really, it would be uncomfortable to be Joel and just be like, okay, but rem- remember when you did this and remember when you did this. And then she's like, well, you left. And then it's like, yeah, but I left because you did this with Ed. 
you know, and you made these decisions and, you know, and you made this choice about your job and you, you know, like, I mean, how do they have those conversations? Like when, with a person who really cannot be wrong Hmm. and I'm probably reading into it too much, but I feel like if I were Joel, I'd be like, I don't want to talk about it either because it's just going to come back to me being uncomfortable with you living your life while I'm waiting for you to maybe make better choices. Yeah. I think it's a fair point, but I, I also think if something is upsetting him, he can't just say, no, I'm fine. Yeah. yeah. And I think what she's trying to get him to say is like, you know, like I asked you about Chris and you said, you'll just have to be okay with it. And then you called and you're upset and you say you're not upset, but you clearly are. Yeah. So let's talk about it. And he says, well, I don't want to. Well, this is not sustainable, buddy. And yeah, absolutely. now I think in order for that to be fruitful, she has to be honest too. Yeah. And take responsibility, which until very recently she hasn't done at all. Yeah. yeah. I loved their fight in the car. I yeah. thought it was weirdly productive. I thought the fact that they went into the car was both like funny from a TV show perspective, just a little bit, like just them moving to where the kids couldn't see them. I enjoyed that. But then on a much deeper level than that, it really sounded like a conversation. It was a fight, but it wasn't like a nasty fight. It wasn't like what we got from them last season was Joel being resentful and kind of throwing out these barbs, you know, and Julia denying any responsibility of anything. They weren't productive fights. They were just no. sort of mean and uncomfortable and circular. And I felt like this, we only got a very brief little scene of it, but it felt like they were actually communicating. They were listening to each other. They weren't like name calling. It wasn't like awful. It was just, to me, it felt like maybe the first scene of them communicating truly that we've gotten in the whole show, all six yeah. years. And I thought, maybe they're going to be okay. I really, you know, I thought maybe this means something that, you know, Joel doesn't want to have the talk, but he's having it. And Julia is like, well, let's compromise and go out to the car. If what you're concerned about is the kids hearing, like it just, maybe both of them conceding a little bit and doing the thing that scares them. I think that's good. Yeah. And it allows them to take a, a step further in that conversation instead of it just ending at Joel being like, I'm not comfortable, but what the un the unsaid context is you need to quit your job. You need to get away from this. And then she can't defend that. She can't talk about that and she can't address that. So going to that next level is he's able to say, this is what I think you need to do. I mean, it, it's assumed that that's what he wants, but for him to have to actually say it allows her to defend her position and what she's going to do and explain how she's going to handle it, which he probably doesn't want to hear because it's easy to live in that, that place sometimes of, um, of anger or whatever it is that he's feeling. Um, so it actually, a lot, it forces those conversations to be had and, and it allows her to have a voice in a place that she should have a voice. She should be able to talk about, talk to how she's going to keep this job and rectify the situation. She should be able to defend that to him. Um, yeah. And that is fair. And I liked that they brought that up in that yeah. talk in the car. Yeah. He said, like, I hate that you work with him. And she said, when I was unemployed, I felt humiliated and, he said, well, maybe you could look for a new job while you do that. And then I'm like, you know, maybe that feels unreasonable, but that's the kind of stuff you can hash out in those fights. Like, yeah. maybe you want me to just not work, but I don't want that. So maybe the compromise is I work somewhere else yeah. or work with other people. Or Yeah. And I really loved that she was able to say I felt humiliated when I didn't work because that 
And it's interesting because it was her choice not to, right? I mean, Joel didn't say, maybe you shouldn't work. You know, she quit without even talking. she did it without, yeah. Yeah. But I think maybe what she learned about herself is she has to work. Like, I think the whole Ed thing only happened because she wasn't working. I really don't think it was about Ed. I think it was about her feeling her lowest point. Like, she just doesn't have confidence. She's so defined by her work which I'm not saying is a bad thing, actually. I think if you are and you know it, then you have to work. You know, I think that if she just quit her job because she's working with Chris, I think they would just go down a very similar path that they did before. She has to work. And that's that's how they functioned for years. She, you know, yeah. they worked out, you know, and, and now the kids are old enough. There's no reason that they can't both work and, and work yeah. it out. They're rich. Like, hire a babysitter and Annie. It's fine. But I, I kind of like the idea that what you bring up there, the idea of it coming full circle and that same problem presents itself and you can see them going in a different direction and the direction that is in the opposite direction of what led them directly to this issue and that's that's pretty cool i like that yeah and melissa what you just said about you know not blaming her for finding a lot of her fulfillment and value in her work i think is really interesting because like i think that's part of the conflict between adam and crosby in this episode Mm. is that i think crosby views his work as a place where he is going to draw a lot of personal fulfillment and satisfaction And maybe Adam wants that, ideally, but that is not what his work has ever been to him. He draws his satisfaction and value from his family. Yeah. And I think he views work as just the means to that end. Let me work so that I can enjoy my family and my life. Yeah. And so, you know, like when he says to the kid, like, I don't have a passion I think that's true. And I think that's true of so many people. I feel like you alluded to that a few episodes ago, that a lot of people deal with their jobs so that they can enjoy other parts of their lives. Yeah. I think this show presents the idea of like work as being like the ideal situation is you you find a passion and you, you pursue that. I mean, it felt kind of like that's what Mentor Week at Chambers Academy was all about. You know, they brought in Hank, they brought in... Jasmine, and then they brought in all these adults that we've never seen at Chambers Academy before. <laughs> so I can't speak to them. But at least Jasmine and, and Hank, it's like, oh, look at them. Photography, dance, these are their passions. And I mean, I don't think Jasmine's always been able to support herself that way. But for a large portion of her life, she was. Until she got together with Crosby, and then she had to start filing. Um, <laughs> she quit Alvin Ailey. Uh, to- for him. Uh. <laughs> for him. Man. For him to sleep with the behavioral aid. That's and true. then throw a temper tantrum. He's yeah. good at that. All right. Well, I think we have some foreshadowing. <laughs> uh, well, let's discuss that. Yeah. Great. <laughs> I found Crosby, Jasmine, Adam, and Christina all beating Amber and Sarah and Hank to the hospital. Very hilarious. And like yeah. just subtle enough. But but like Adam and Christina standing with the balloons. Yes. Hey, you guys got one pink, one blue. That yeah. was, Mark pointed that out. I thought that was hilarious. Yeah, that was really funny. Yeah. So their fight at the hospital was intense. I felt like I was holding my breath through much of it. Yeah. But maybe strangely, maybe not. You tell me. My biggest takeaway from that scene 
was how valuable a character Jasmine could have been this whole time. <laughs> I was like, I don't think we've ever seen her have a conflict with any Braverman other than Crosby. Yeah. And it was exciting yeah. to watch her and Christina argue about a real issue. I loved it. Yeah. I just was like, guys, this you could have had this like every week if she just had relationships with anyone else in the family. Anyway, that being said, I was still more on Christina's side than Jasmine's. I'm not sure it was uh, the appropriate time to bring it up. And I feel like they both escalated very quickly. But like Christina kind of started it. If it's great, if you say it's great, then I guess it's great. (laughs) Like, come on. But I do think Jasmine absolutely guilted Adam. Oh, yeah. Totally. And maybe that wasn't her intention, but I think she was just after the result. However, if he feels guilty, so be it. Yeah. And as she said, he is an adult. I don't think she, you know, takes all the blame for it. Yeah. At one point, I looked at Mark and I was like, you love bitchy Christina, don't you? Because <laughs> when she's just like, if you say it's great, it's great. And Mark's just cracking up. <laughs> yeah, Christina's probably my favorite character, but I... Yeah, I thought to to your point about Jasmine, um, man, she owned her though, and she was in the wrong, yeah. and she just dominated that. But then yeah. you know to really put up with Crosby, which I'm sure we'll get into later. I mean, you've got to be good at that because he is <laughs> insufferable, fucking insufferable. <laughs> okay, and I have actually felt kind of bad for Crosby at times in this episode, but every time I looked over at Mark, he was just shaking his head like this asshole. <laughs> It's really interesting. Really? Oh my okay, because I this I fucking was, guy. <laughs> well, let's get into that because I was shocked, almost aghast, at how amazing it was to hear Crosby articulate yes. a position that to me felt totally valid. Hey, you can't throw a tantrum and leave. That's the second time that you've gone behind my back after I told you something in private. You went and told your mom that I had financial issues, and then you go tell Adam that, and everyone knows but me, and I look stupid? I'm sorry, I was trying to help you. Oh, because I can't help myself? That's not why I did it. Listen to me, I can't be in business with somebody who doesn't want to be in business with me. I can't have a partnership like that. Baby, I just went to Adam because I knew how much the luncheonette means to you. That's why. I'm sorry. It doesn't mean anything to me now. What was special about it was Adam and I. I don't have that now, so it doesn't matter. I kind of felt bad when he said that, but how did... I felt like I was hearing a man say, I want it my way, the way I want it, how I want it, I want it now. That's what I heard. (laughs) And I've watched five episodes all the way through, and in, I think, four of them, Crosby has thrown a little baby fit and been an asshole. And so I, I just... I think maybe if it was the first time I had... I mean, I I didn't think that anybody came off really looking good in this situation. I I actually think that Crosby's right talking to Jasmine. But I just think that from what I've seen about Crosby, it's just like, okay, so for once, other people are at fault. And you are taking full advantage of it. I mean, you're just being a total dick about it. For the first time, you actually didn't do anything wrong. And it just, that holier than thou shit that he was Maybe doing. that's what I'm responding to. It's just yeah. like so annoying. It's just, it's like for a guy who everybody has been patient around and who is just constantly fucked up all the time. And the whole reason you have the lunch net in the first place, as far as I know, is because 
your brother wants to, you to be successful. And now for you to throw this fit because it's not exactly the way you want it. Like, I don't know. It's frustrating to me. It's also frustrating to me, the conditions of it, of, you know what? I get that he doesn't want to be felt sorry for, but he also is a big fucking baby about not getting his way. And he was a big baby, because I watched the episode before, about not getting the luncheonette going. He kept peer pressuring Adam. He kept trying. He kept trying. And then he goes home and pouts like a bitch. And so (laughs) then Jasmine wants to fix it. So I don't know. I don't, I, I'm sorry. Maybe I'm being too hard on Crosby, but I feel like he is just the epitome of that kid. You know, just like, it's like, why are you guys handling with kid gloves? Because you throw a fit every time something doesn't go your way. And so we were trying to make it right for you. And now you're throwing a fit and proving our point. And Adam was willing to sacrifice. And I, I, I mean, you know, he doesn't stop about that. It's you guys aren't doing it my way. It's, it's my feelings first. It's not like, you know what? And I, and I know when you're mad, it's hard to see that. But like there was no not one point where he understood that everybody's actions had to do with his well-being. That's why they did it. Because they love him and they want him to be okay. And he was just a shithead about it. Anyway. And I, maybe if I hadn't seen these other episodes where he also was a shithead, I would not be so strong in this. And if, if maybe it had been watered down throughout. But I think one episode is where I thought Crosby was pretty amazing. And the rest of them, I thought he was always wrong and always making the choice that everybody else had to sacrifice for. Yeah. Well, and maybe you are being too hard on him. But also maybe we are holding him to too low of a standard because we've watched every episode. Because a lot of what you said, like when you said this is the first time he didn't do anything wrong. That feels really true to me. Like usually his problems are of his own making. Mm -hmm. And so I'm a little like, come on, Crosby, you can do better. This time I didn't feel that way. So it was like, oh, you're an adult. (laughs) But was he really, or is it just, you know, in comparison? And I will say something in what he said to Jasmine, what really resonated with me was, him saying this is the second time I told you something in confidence and Mm. you went and told someone else. I'm like, that is fair. That is a pattern now. And that's a fair point. And I also just felt like it was such a richer conflict than he's a man child and she's a nag, which is the only storyline we've been getting between them for like two seasons. True. But then at the end, she says, I just went to Adam because I know how much the luncheonette means to you. And he says, it doesn't mean anything to me because I don't have Adam. Like, well, but, but you're kind of just proving what she just said. She went to try and get Adam yeah. because she knew that's what meant so much to you. Yeah. And, and for as so, much as you give him credit for being an adult for once, Adam is more of an adult because his wife just went through cancer and he is having a perspective change in life. And he's like, I don't, this isn't, this isn't for me. It's not to have a failing business so I can be closer to my brother. I have a life to live. And that is, that is a higher level thinking situation. And Crosby cannot wrap his head around that. I also found it interesting that in the hospital, Christina was so upset with Jasmine. But then when Crosby and Adam came in, Adam was saying, I felt very sincerely, Jasmine didn't do anything wrong. Mm-hmm, like he yeah. was assuring Crosby, like, don't be bent out of shape about anything she did. And was kind of owning his own decision, even though I do think she guilted him into it. But I think he, at least for once, was like owning his part in it. And that felt very real. Like, oh, Christina views this, looks at the exact same situation as her husband 
and they just have totally different attitudes about it. And then as soon as Crosby starts bitching about it, then suddenly Adam's like, you know what? I do hate it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be there. Because I think that Adam likes Jasmine more than he likes Crosby. I mean, he obviously loves Crosby more, you know, but I think that he thinks of Jasmine as like a kind person who doesn't manipulate his feelings all the time. This was probably the first time that ever happened. If Crosby had guilted him the same way, same conversation, I think he, he would have been like, Crosby, you do this to me my always my whole life and he would have yeah. been, you know and so i think once crosby does enter the conversation that is why he goes to you know what i hate it i think he sees it differently when jasmine does it and as for christina she is so protective of her family that anytime and, and by her family i mean immediate family that yeah. anytime anybody else threatens it in any way we've seen her the way she reacts is very protective and it's when she's her snarkiest vicious yeah kind yeah. of vicious but I also love, (laughs) I felt so bad for Zeke and Camille just watching their children behave so badly. Yeah. But then I thought it was hilarious. Hank is behind them. (laughs) Just totally like trying to blend into the wallpaper or something. And in episode 610, when he was like clearly wishing to be part of the family (laughs) to contrast that with this, I just imagine that he was like, wait, do I really want to be a part of this? <laughs> well, I what am I getting myself into? To, yeah. to jump forward, too, from, from that argument into uh, Zeke's reaction, I mean, I don't, you know, obviously I don't know what happens next. I haven't seen the final episode, but I know that, you know, from this episode that he's in pretty serious health condition and you have this, his existence is slipping away, right? And by existence, I don't mean his life. I mean like him as the patriarch of the family. His control is going. And this is the first time I've seen him as a character not have control of a situation. He is usually very much in control and he is muttering to himself and he is a really sympathetic character. And and he he's saying, please stop, please stop. He, and that happens later on too. He's just kind of like feels so out of it and out of control and he he doesn't have the health to, to bounce back. He doesn't have the anger anymore. Um, and so I thought that was uh, interesting kind of dynamic as, as the, the family is shifting away from Zeke, right? It's shifting away and it's shifting into something else. And he's just kind of watching everybody's life move right there in that hospital room, ironically, as a baby is supposed to be being, being born. And, you know, it's just really interesting um, scene, I thought. As, yeah. as, and it was sad. I mean, it was it was it was, it was irritating. And then the parents' reaction to the fight and the way that they just really did it in a subtle way, what I thought was shifted my emotion about the scene. Um, and it, yeah. And you just made me realize that the sons are kind of acting the way that Zeke usually acts. They're just uh, reactionary and angry. They're yelling. And Zeke could just, yeah, usually like outshout everyone and get that control. But yeah, he is too weak. He doesn't have the energy to do it. And, it's, and it's a nice subtle way of showing how age, I think, can prioritize mm. things so starkly. Like Adam and Crosby think that this really matters. Yeah. They think it matters so much that it gets them screaming in a public place. And usually, and yeah, you're right. Usually Zeke would be right there with them. But Zeke is dealing with something that makes him realize, no, what I'm going through matters. Yeah. Well, what you guys are arguing about is nonsense. Because he has the perspective of a dying man or whatever. I mean, you know, like he he understands like perspective is there now. 
And I um, think and Camille is there saying, you're upsetting your father. Yeah. And yeah. Even though he's not saying anything, she's totally right. And yeah. he's not upset with her for saying that. I feel like he's a character that would be upset with her for talk, speaking for him. And he's just yeah. overwhelmed. I mean, it's just like yeah. he's got bigger things and nobody else in the room. And I think that that's a nice moment in a way, as shouty and annoying as it was. Is that they don't, re- I mean, they know he's sick and they know things are going, but they don't know the decision that they've made. They don't know these things. And so yeah. if, if that decision was known, that interaction would be different. And yeah. there's so many times in our lives, I know in my life, that my interactions would be different had I known the per- full perspective of the people I was interacting with. So that's, totally. that's a nice little human moment, which the show does seem to do a good job of pulling out, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Amber was at the hospital thinking she was going into labor. It turned out to be gas. <laughs> that made me laugh out loud. And she's like, yeah. it was gas. <laughs> it was gas. Is this the last Sarah and Amber scene ever? I don't know, but in I, this episode? I loved it so much. I can't remember if there's one in the next episode, but it was I don't either, perfection. but I think it might have been. And um, I just being this close to the end of the series makes everything more meaningful. And this felt like such a great Sarah and Amber moment, but also like a great Mae Whitman, Lauren Graham moment. Yeah. I was just going to say you could stay and hang out for a minute if you want. Oh, really? I would love to. Okay? Yeah. Just like... Just thinking about stuff. Yeah. I am feeling bad because the other day, you know, when I thought I was going to have the baby, mm-hmm. <laughs> when I found out that I wasn't, I felt so relieved. I mean, I, I have a job that pays me nothing and that's probably not going to last much longer. And I have no idea even how to take care of myself. And I just... Something shifts. You just have to trust me. Something shifts, and you'll figure it out. But what if I don't? What if... What if having this baby was a mistake? When you hold the baby... (laughs) Something happens. And I can almost guarantee you... You won't feel like it's a mistake then. (laughs) How can you hold this thing with that stomach? (laughs) I know. I have got to compliment their line readings on that last part, by the way, because I cannot think of any two other actors who could pull off you're my hero and then like go on. Like that was so good and not cheesy at all. And like, how is telling someone you're my hero ever going to be pulled off? But I think they did it. And her just like, go on. It was just great. I don't. Well, I have a little fun fact about that very line. Ooh. This is from a speech that Mae Whitman made when accepting a Gracie Award, one of the few awards that anyone ever won for Parenthood. 
That award is given by the Alliance for Women in Media, and Lauren Graham presented it to her. And they showed a clip of this scene. And in May's speech, she said this. Lastly, I just want to thank Lauren Graham because uh, I can't tell you guys what it's like to, first of all, be in a room with her uh, creatively when you're acting with her. I could go in and not have any idea what I was doing and look into her eyes and know that I was going to be taken care of because she's truly the most elegant and smart and funny and classy person I know. And um, in that scene, actually, there are no words for me to ever describe how much I love her, but one thing I'll say is that scene kind of ends with, um, they let us improvise a lot on parenthood. And, uh, and so that was one of the last scenes that we shot together after six years of building this relationship with my, our two characters. And uh, so right before we were about to cut, I just added, um, I just looked at her and it just came out and I said, you're my hero. And, uh, and that really wasn't a line that came from Mae Whitman to Lauren Graham. So she's my idol and my hero. And uh, so are you guys. So thank you so much. I'm really honored. Thanks. Oh, my God. I love knowing that. That's great. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, that's why it worked, because it wasn't a cheesy line was, she was yeah, trying to sell. straight from her heart. Yeah. And then they sang the Circle Game, which is a Joni Mitchell song, first recorded by Buffy St. Marie in 1967, and eventually recorded by Joni Mitchell herself in 1970. It's one of her most covered songs. It's beautiful. Yeah. I didn't know it until I had seen it on Parenthood. I wonder if Drew knew that song. Like, you know, the episode where he pretends to Natalie that he knows Joni Mitchell. But then I'm like, everyone in your family does know Joni Mitchell. It doesn't seem like you'd have to lie. Well, yeah. And his mom said that it was their song. Yeah. Her and Amber's. Would Drew have no clue? He would have heard them sing it. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyway, small note, but. I loved their scene too, though. I it may be a strange detail to latch onto. I really appreciated when Sarah said, "When you hold the baby, I can almost guarantee you yeah. won't think it's a mistake." I just love leaving that little room for exceptions. Yeah, especially like <laughs> postpartum depression is a real thing. Like, we can't just pretend everyone holds their baby and feels that warm love bubble. Like some people feel panic, I, you know, like some people feel dread. And so I think it's good yeah. to cover that a little bit, like not making an assumption. That it's not a demon baby. <laughs> you know, like what if that's a demon baby? Yeah. That's yeah. a big almost. So yeah. good to know. What if it's Kevin? Um, <laughs> we need to talk about Kevin. To talk about him. Oh, yeah. Or Damien from The Omen. Yeah. Damien the Demon Seed. <laughs> As Zeke said. Yeah, this Amber's first boyfriend was named Damien. And that was Zeke's reaction. <laughs> I also liked how you, after their false alarm, where everyone was at the hospital and it ended up in a screaming fit. Yeah. I liked how when it really happened, Amber asked for just Sarah. And it didn't feel like emotionally manipulative on the show's part. It felt like the flip side of the Bravermans always being there for each other, which is that I would think there would be a lot of pressure surrounding big family events that one might not want to deal with. And I think especially after the false alarm, Amber saying she was relieved, I think it would be way less pressure to not have the whole family there. Just have Sarah there, just get through it, and then they can start telling people. I also thought she might 
mean she didn't really want Hank there and not in a mean way at all, but just, you know, like even when Hank drove them before, it was meant to be funny, but it was very distracting for me. Like how he drove slowly. Okay, I get that. He didn't want there to be a wreck. But then when he sped up and like literally two cars almost hit them because he was like running a red light and she yelled, why can't you drive like a normal person? Which I'm sure she wasn't trying to be insensitive about the, you know, autism, you, you know, in that moment. But like, oh, I didn't even think of that. I, I, yeah. But I, I will say like, I mean, Amber got into a wreck that way once. Remember, like, you know, Gary was and somebody like just sideswiped them. It was just a lot of drama. And even it was like a line that I'm guessing Ray Romano like improvised when he was trying to buy cigars with with Adam and Crosby. And he was like, I almost killed all of us on the way here. <laughs> like he just <laughs> said that the like subtitles were up. I could just I mean, it was stressful and dramatic all the way through that previous time. And I could see, yeah, she just wanted something quiet with just her mom. And I think that's a nice reflective moment that a lot of us have had, you know, where you it's expected that maybe the whole family wants to be there for something. And they're just like, you know, it's not really your moment. It's our moment. And yeah. it's, it's her moment. She's having a baby. She wants her mom to be there and that's it. And they just, they don't want to share it with anybody else until they're ready to. And I think everybody shown showed that they were um, correct <laughs> in making that choice <laughs> because if she had had the baby, that's, that's her moment and they have completely taken it over, but with all their infighting and all this other garbage, you know, so it seemed also very realistic to me that they would have no qualms about just doing it by themselves. Yeah. Yeah. It feels right. Yeah, it does. And then I liked that it let them have just the great grandparents in before everyone else. Cause you know, who, who doesn't mean the most to outside of Sarah and Amber, Zeke and Camille. And they can have a moment without all the yelling and stuff, too. And, yeah. and at that point, Sarah had already had her scene with him where he said, I just can't take all the yelling. Yeah. So there's so much of this show that I don't remember. I absolutely did remember that Amber had a boy and named him Zeke. Ditto. Yeah. But it still got me. Oh, my God. <laughs> I was still moved. I loved it so much. Although I made the comment to Mark while we were watching it. I was like. I think it's beautiful. But I was like, do you think it freaks Zeke out a little the same way that when you give someone a Lifetime Achievement Award? <laughs> you know? You're know, you about to die. Yeah, I mean, do you think she would have named him that if you had been in perfect health? I'm just throwing that out there. I think she might have yeah, anyway. I like that. So, yeah. Yeah. I think it's a beautiful gesture no matter what. I just wondered, like, is that touching to him or does it sort of make him panic? You know, but he knows, I guess, anyway. He knows it's happening. It does make me wonder, though, is the baby's name Zeke Holt? Is the baby's name Zeke York? Oh, yeah. It's almost certainly not Zeke Braverman. No, right? probably not. Because that's not Amber's name. That's true. That's not Ryan's name. Yeah, it would be it would be Holt. Or, and neither or of the other two are very good. I don't think. Yeah, Zeke Holt sounds like a a German command or something. Zeke Holt. <laughs> oh no, it does. I bet it's York because. And Zeke York sounds like just not good. But Mm-mm. double K's. It sounds like you're just stumbling over your words. Zeke York. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. You know, it kind of reminds me of on Sex in the City when Miranda gives birth. And, and with her ex-boyfriend, Steve, and Steve's there with her. And she names him. He was like, well, what's the baby's name? And she was like, I was thinking Brady, which is Steve's last name. And that makes Steve start to cry. And it's really beautiful until you think, 
oh, so that means Brady's not his last name, is it? <laughs> that means <laughs> she's giving her last name. And so it's like really like touching and lovely, but it's also her way of saying, he has my last name. It's, it's Brady Hobbs <laughs> is what his name is. But in this case, I don't know. Yeah, I didn't even think of that. Zeke Braverman just sounds amazing, but that's not yeah. that's not his name. Zeke Braverman. Yeah, <laughs> that's my that's me doing Adam doing Zeke. It's very good. Zeke Braverman. Oh. How you doing? Oh no, I don't know if I've ever mentioned, but I'm going to gripe about it now. Okay. Zeke on this show is spelled Z E E K. That is not how people usually spell Zeke. It's usually Z E K E because it's a shortened form of Ezekiel. Yeah. Hmm. Ezekiel is not spelled E-Z-E-E-K-I-E-L. Yeah. And so it kind of bugs me. And I'm guessing that the baby's name is Ezekiel, and they're going to call him Zeke. But I'm guessing they're going to spell it in his same bullshit way. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it took me forever to start typing his name correctly in my notes. I was like, oh, right. Okay, it's E-E. And I wonder what their reasoning for that was, what their reasoning was. Because I think when some people look at vowels... (laughs) They see opportunity. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. Go, oh, here's, here's a vowel situation. I'm going to fuck with it. I'm going to make it my own. Mark teaches people to read. I wonder, I mean, it's yeah, like, I also see a How are they ever supposed to learn when I mean, the, there's the, Zeke's around with two E's? Names are usually, if, if you see uh, uncommon spellings of names, it's often in the vowel teams and the vowel very often. So, I don't know. I'm not gonna. Well, I'm not gonna get into that. We can start our next podcast and talk about that all day long. But I think the, uh, you know, would we call it vowel time? Uh, we could call it vowel time. Okay. How about vowel movements. <laughs> oh, that's better. That's, that's gonna happen. That's now. Good. Yeah. You or cannot. irritable vowels. Oh. <laughs> Some little, you know, plan. irritable like e a r. Irritable. <laughs> if you keep it. <laughs> Keep it up, and it's gonna have to happen. Because, uh, Irritable, b u l o. Oh man! Well, well, greetings to new little baby Zeke. Yay! I think he's probably got a hard life ahead of him. Prob- <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah, he probably does. But, I mean, actually, yeah. earlier when you said he'll be loved, though. Yeah, very loved. When you said who should he meet, bef- you know, after Sarah, I thought Drew, but Drew's not in this episode. But yeah, but I'm. Um, I hope we get a nice special scene of baby Zeke with Drew because, you know, that's her like best friend. I mean, I guess her mom is her best friend. Oh, I do have a little comment I want to make about that. That was something Mark and I were talking about while we were watching that beautiful scene with Mae Whitman and and Lauren Graham. Just the whole idea of a mom and daughter being so close, which of course Lauren Graham has already done on Gilmore Girls. And (laughs) I just had the thought that I really buy and ultimately appreciate this version of mother-daughter as best friends more because they weren't always best friends. And I wouldn't even necessarily call them best friends if Amber herself hadn't used that term with with Ruby earlier in the season, you know, when she said we we had to go through a lot, but now she's my best friend. And I thought that seems healthier than you're like, adolescent teenage daughter like you're just sort of raising her like your pal more than your daughter and I think I think Sarah raised her kids like her kids not her friends you know I think that I love her style I love how she raised them but like she was their parent and she was their force of stability because their dad wasn't that you know and and I think that's why both of them respect the hell out of her now and that's I just think it feels so earned now that Amber's an adult. 
her mom gets to be her best friend. And I, I just, I don't know. If, and I, no shade. I love Gilmore Girls. And I, that relationship was really like fun. But I think this is really healthy and really good. Yeah, I agree. And I think that Amber still does view her as a parent, even though she says she's her best friend. I mean, I, I much more buy a daughter telling her mother that she's her hero than a friend telling another friend. Yeah. I mean, I know she says it about Lauren Graham, but even then I think the age difference makes a big difference too. I mean, I think she views her as a mentor. Yeah, I agree. I don't know why you would call a peer your hero. Yeah. Have you ever called anyway. anyone your hero? God, no. <laughs> okay. It doesn't seem like something you would say. Like you just like turn to someone and you're like, you're my hero. It doesn't seem very Mark Johnson. Have you? I don't know. I don't think that's a term I use. No, I think I say like I admire people, you know, like really like look up to someone. But I mean, honestly, like not to get cheesy, I, I think I use hero for like Martin Luther King Jr. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I, I think of like more like notable figures who have like changed the world, even though I know that's not how everyone uses it. Some use it in a much more personal way, but... When I to me, hero implies rescue. Oh yeah. And I'm like, well, I've never been in that kind of danger. I've never <laughs> needed saving, yeah. so I don't consider anyone my hero. Yeah. Huh. Anyway. Anyway, interesting. Let's move on to Edgar. <gasps> I loved Edgar. I loved <laughs> Edgar too, and I want to I want to give him a special shout out. He was played by Andy Ames, whose name wasn't even in the guest starring credits at the beginning. You had to wait till the end credits. I'm like, he had many, many scenes. Yeah, he was important. And I, I thought he was the most likable student we've met yet at Chambers. Oh, he was a sweetheart. Do you think that actor really is like on the spectrum? Do you have any, do you know? I tried I to look know. that up, I but couldn't I couldn't find, find it. I couldn't find any information about him really online. I know he's been in previous episodes, so it's not the first time we've seen him. Yeah. But he made a really fantastic impression here, I thought. Yeah, he just seemed so believable. Like, and, you know, it just, he was, I really liked that performance. So, yeah. And I felt like if these were the kinds of stories we got at Chambers, I might like Chambers more. Yeah. But <laughs> even Mark, though I, Mark had kind of a, even though I felt like this storyline was far and away the least compelling of the episode. Yeah. It just seems like it was stacked against these storylines that had huge structural places in the overall arc of the series, which is about to end. And then there was this storyline about a statistic. I want to make a souffle. Souffle? I read in the cookbook that a true chef is not a true chef unless he masters the souffle. That's true, I'm sure, but I think that a souffle might be a little challenging for us. It might be something we want to work up to. Maybe next year. Okay. Probably doesn't matter what you cook since you're probably going to end up unemployed anyway. Max, what are you what? talking about? Autism has an 85% unemployment rate. No, that is not necessarily true. This is good stuff. This is raw emotion. It's not necessarily true, Max. It absolutely is. It nope. is actually... Well, it's not going to be true here at Chambers, okay? You guys are all going to be employed. Edgar, you're going to be employed. Max, you're going to be employed. Dylan, Aaron Brownstein, Tiara, everybody's going to be employed, okay? Dylan might have a shot because she has no diagnosis, but... The rest of us are basically screwed. No, you're, you're not screwed. You're not screwed. Don't listen to him, Edgar. Listen to me. Max, you're not screwed, okay? You all have great potential to have great careers. And That's I'll extremely tell you something. subjective. Edgar, we are making that souffle. According to AutismFoundationOK.org, autism unemployment was approximately 85% in 2021, 
and research shows that autistic individuals face higher unemployment rates and social isolation than other disabilities. The discrimination can largely be found unconsciously, which makes it more difficult to identify and prove its existence. Wow. So I think Max was actually right about the numbers, which is depressing. Yeah. But also, like, what else is Adam supposed to say? Yeah, well, maybe you'll be in the 15%. What did you think of what Adam said? I think Adam's confidence to be able to just accomplish things that most people have to do, you know, have to go to school for and fail many, many times to do fucking annoys the shit out of me is what I think. <laughs> I, I think like I just the, the Braverman boys were not on my good side in this episode. I just I he just has that like, I can do anything. What are you talking about? Like souffle. Blah, blah. Like I, just, I don't know this storyline. I don't know much about it. I know very little. I'm not I'm not a fan <laughs> of of this and it it probably cuz it hits a little close to home this idea that public schools are holding back my child uh so I'm going to I'm going to start my own thing and I'm going to excel at it and I'm I can just put a ragtag group of people around who have skills but no <laughs> ability to teach it and we're going to teach this shit and we're going to get it done it irritates me and I have a hard time separating it Pre-pandemic, I did not have as many stories about that attitude as I have now. But I will tell you, um, I've cleaned up a lot of messes that came from that attitude. And, mm. and, and, and I'm, I'm not specifically speaking of parents or teachers. Or I'm just going to say we've, we had a lot of that. Well, fine. We'll do it our own way. It's, it turns out that you may need to have some experience and a degree and have some things to be able to do these things, that there are areas of thought and there are things that you need to study to understand how say. to do it. And so for, for them to have not only an autism program, which is its own specialization, but also have a dance program and a motherfucking chef program, <laughs> two things that are very, very difficult for people to break into in the big world. Let's face it, right? Like, I mean, you're in the arts. And both taught by her family. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> at least, at least Jasmine is a professional dancer. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. But I still, it's just, it's irritating to me. Yeah. Uh, and, and I guess if I didn't, if, if it's not something that I found rang true, especially with Adam's demographic, I might be able to like say like, oh, I love this optimism. This is such an American story. This, this idea that you can do anything if you put your mind to it. You can do a lot of things if, if you study and you learn how to do things and how to work. But like just telling kids that they can do whatever they want to do and then learning how to make a souffle is not going to change that statistic. Which, when was this filmed? Because if you say the statistic is still 85%, I guess it's proven that Adam Braverman did shit by making that souffle. (laughs) That's true. That percentage has not changed, Adam Braverman. Well, you know, I know we've often said something we like about Parenthood is that they'll take storylines we've seen before, but put a little twist on them. Maybe this storyline would have been more successful if his souffle fell at the end. Like, he put in a lot of effort... And they gave it a good try, and it just didn't work because it's really hard to make a souffle. And they say, you know what? We'll keep working on it. I actually was hoping it would fail to show, because working with students with special needs and with disabilities and with autism, accepting defeat is a big deal. Accepting that it it doesn't have to end here, that you're going to have a ton of these, and it's going to happen, and you got to keep getting up and going at it and trying again. 
or also that like, well, making a souffle is really hard. And if you can't accept the failure of this culinary art, which is what it, you're, you're going to fail a lot before you actually figure out how you're going to make your own and how people are going to pay you an immense amount of money for you to live on your own, to eat your food. You're going to have to make it your own. And that comes with making a lot of mistakes. So I, I think uh, that would have been poignant and great and realistic from my point of view, but instead it was just another Adam Braverman, I'll do it my way and, and I will smirk and celebrate and fist pump. And, you know, it just didn't, I, I'm sorry. I'm not feeling it, Adam Braverman. I'm not feeling it, buddy. It is sort of that pie in the sky optimism that I really don't like. I, I really, how do I put this? I love positivity. I really do. But it has to be like earned real authentic it feels to me like practical yeah his version of it feels like that toxic positivity that's like forced and like based on nothing you know like just because we say we can do it we can do it and I think that's what has really driven me crazy about the whole school storyline you know like from the beginning she's like no one will get bullied at this school and even though Max is telling us a hard truth about 85 percent nope not at our school it's a perfect bubble where everyone will be employed. And it's like, you guys have to actually talk about the tough realities that you face and find contingency plans within those instead of just acting like none of this matters, you know? And I will tell you the part of the episode that pissed me off the most was when Adam and Christina were having their conversation with Max and he was saying that statistics were just accurate, which he's right. You know, he's like, that's, that's what they are. And Christina says something like, well, I think that we're a little bit more accurate when we talk about your future. Cause we can see it all. And I was like, what does that even mean? No, that you're not more accurate than statistics and you can't see the future. Knowing Max now doesn't mean you can guarantee him a good future. It reminded me of what you said, Caleb, when she was like, I promise you that you'll find someone who loves you as you are. It's like, well, I I hope that happens, but there are no guarantees in this life. And Adam yeah. and Christina just keep acting like there are guarantees. And it's really difficult. I don't appreciate it, actually. It would not make, it would be cold comfort for me if I were Max for them to just be like, I say it's going to be great. And he's like, okay, yeah. well, how do you actually alleviate some of my fears? How can we actually, you know, it reminds me of when Amber didn't get into college and she kept saying, can we talk about like to Sarah, can we talk about what happens if I don't get into college? And Sarah's just like, you will, but then she fucking doesn't. And they never yeah. talked about it. And she like falls apart. And these Bravermans keep doing that. They don't have the hard conversations about what they'll do if things don't work out they just say it will yeah and you know and that right there is why i appreciated that she said when you hold the baby i can almost get it <laughs> yes yes because sometimes things don't go the way you would like yeah i i think also in a realistic scenario uh, what a teacher would ask when when max says you know the 85 percent percent statistic the question that I would think should be asked would be, why? What what factors lead to that? And then you get those factors and you say, all right, that's what we need to work on then, right? Like if, if it's if it's the limited social, you know, flexibility, then this souffle when it fails is going to teach you how to do this or, well, you know, whatever. Yeah. But I think like, why? Not just, oh, Max, I want to make you feel better. Max doesn't, 
Max feels better in the comfort of that statistic. He feels better just knowing that he's probably going to fail than he does with all this bullshit that his parents heap on him all the time. And that's what he wants to hear. He wants to hear how to fix it because it's black and white for him. Well, here's the statistic. Show me how to make the statistic get better then. I mean, if, if this is what it is. So, I, and I also think that it just highlights this um, kind of middle-class arrogance or whatever, this idea that nobody else can do it as good as us. And look, these what, like every teacher has a ton of really great moments in a day, but those aren't the things that are celebrated. In fact, a lot of things aren't celebrated. A lot of things that are pointed out are the failures. Well, right here, what we see with the Bravermans is these two moments of celebration, but we're not seeing, you know, they're not going to be held accountable for when the kids can't get jobs. We're just seeing the, you know, look, look, we could do it in this moment. We could teach the dance. We could build the souffle. Well, yeah, but you're not teaching them social skills and you're not changing that statistic by doing this. You're having a nice moment with a kid that just about anybody could do. Uh, there's no reason for you to be able to have a school over this. <laughs> it's, <laughs> yeah, It's making me wonder, I think something that actually would bring Max some comfort. Does he know? That Hank is probably on the spectrum. Does it like? Did, is that something anyone has ever talked to him, mm. to Max about? That's a good question. I don't know. I don't think we've ever seen that. We I have? mean, I think he knows, right? I mean, he knows, but it's not like explicitly stated. Like Max has always known because he gets along with him so well and talks to him, just like he knew with the Bud guy. But did Max know? But with he the doesn't bud guy? know, like by a label. Yeah. No, but he. I mean. He connects, you know? Yeah, I just mean, like, it would be cool for someone to explicitly give him examples. I don't know, like, I, I agree. Amazing Andy yeah. and Hank both had successful businesses. Why? Let's talk about why right, they right, did. Right. And and maybe even talk about, like, at least with Hank, since they know Hank, like, let's talk about some of his shortcomings, <laughs> you know? Like, he's not always great with people, et cetera, et cetera. But he's so talented that he's able to make that happen. And look at how, maybe you're going to be okay, Max, because he's teaching you that talent. He's literally your mentor. Just having those conversations about how other people have beaten the odds and succeeded. I mean, there was also, what, an 80% statistic that parents of a kid on the spectrum would get divorced and Adam yeah. and Christina are still together. And so, like, maybe that's a conversation. And that 90% of parents with autistic kids would kiss their receptionists. <laughs> she kissed him. And he was Mark just was on for out. that episode. He, he was, was just looking out for her, whatever it was. He purity. Was you know what I'd purity. love to do? That's, I was going to say virginity, but yeah, purity. <laughs> yeah. Um, that Adam and Christina scene fell really flat to me, sort of like a failed souffle. <laughs> we don't even know what that is, though, Caleb, because they didn't fucking fail at it. <laughs> no, no one fails at Chambers. No one does. But on a more basic level, I, like I said, it just doesn't. This whole thing didn't feel like a full fledged storyline. It felt like a pretty random, very special moment. No. And I think it could have been more effective if it hadn't been them coming in and sitting down with their little buddy. <laughs> but if it had just been like around the dinner table or something and they tried to be way more casual about it yeah, rather than so heartfelt, like, yeah, I, we know we heard you mention this statistic. We don't want you to think that those are like determinative. We want you to, I, I don't know. No. But on the my second watch, I felt a little more connection with it because I've noticed on social media that Monica Potter and Max Burkholder have stayed in touch 
over the years That's and seem cute. to genuinely like each other. And then suddenly Christina talking to Max felt like Monica talking to Max mm. when she said, you know, I, I see your future and it's so bright. And knowing that they were about to not see each other every day. And I'm like, oh, well, that's moving on like a meta level. That it's makes still me kind like of it a more. bullshit moment with the characters. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. And like I said, I, it was pretty simple and kind of trite. But I liked what we learned about Adam at the end of this storyline. Is it really true about the 85%? Oh, Edgar, I don't want you to worry about what Max said. But what if I suck at cooking? Then what? How will I find something that I love? Well, you just keep searching. Sometimes it's a long journey, and sometimes your career finds you. You know, there are people who figure out what they want to do at a really young age, like my brother and other people who are 45, still don't know what they want to do. How did you find your passion? You know, I'll let you know when it happens. Okay. I just really liked hearing him admit that he didn't have a passion yet. I often felt really blessed that I had a passion and I knew with like a fair amount of specificity what I wanted to do with my life. And I've had lots of ambitions that never materialized within that field, but I still feel like somewhere within it is where I belong. And I know a lot of people never figure out what that is for them. And just hearing it now, thinking about what we've been talking about, it does feel like a big missed opportunity for Edgar to say, what if I suck at cooking? Yeah, let, let's talk about that. What do you do suck? <laughs> yeah. And then when he says, how will I find something I love? I also want to say like, you can suck at something you love. If you love it, that might motivate you to get better at it. And then you won't suck anymore. Yeah. I think sometimes kids these days um, <laughs> just expect to excel at something because it means a lot to them. And I think that's not how that works. I remember having a moment of like, have I gone through the looking glass? <laughs> when they had a reality show to find an actress to play Elle Woods in the Legally Blonde musical. I think it was on VH1. Or maybe it was MTV. And one girl got eliminated and she was crying into the camera and she said, no one, and I mean no one here, wants this more than me. And I was just like, what? Who cares if you want it? That's irrelevant. Are you a good singer? Are you a good actor? Are you a good dancer? That's what we're looking for. I couldn't give two shits if you want it or not. <laughs> but I think it, it it just sounded to her like, well, that means it's mine. Yeah. I want it the most. You got to get out of that mindset. A lot of people have it. One of the more interesting things I like to talk about with my students is to what degree can we enjoy things that we're not very good at? we really have like this society of like winners and like kids who play football, it's because they're good at it. And then they love it because they're good at it. Like, and if they're terrible at it, then they probably hate it because it makes them feel bad that they're not good at it. And, you know, so I'm always fascinated when a kid says something like, I really love drawing. I'm not very good at it though. You know, or like, because it's kind of rare. Like a lot of times it really, there's a correlation. I, I don't think I'm good at that. at enjoying things I'm bad at. No, it makes me feel really like, inadequate and who likes that feeling but but it is such an interesting thing the idea that like is something worth pursuing if you're not good at it I also thought like it was interesting for Edgar to say like what if I suck at cooking how will I find something else I love in the face of that 85% statistic wouldn't you think how else will I make money and support myself <laughs> you know but we we often yeah. present work as 
finding your passion. And sometimes it is, but it's just like a very romanticized idea of work. Like I would say Mark and I have both found our passion. I think we're both passionate about teaching and we find meaning in it. But it is certainly hard work. And <laughs> it's like, you know. She says with visible weariness on her face, yes, listeners. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're we're often like almost like coming home from work like, I don't, I don't even know how to put it. We're just like so exhausted that it like takes a little time to shake it off of us. Is that our dream to be this exhausted? (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like, it's hard to say. I mean, in a way, yes, but in a way that is just such a simplified look at work as, as will follow you. I hate that expression. Like do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. It's like, that's no, we work very hard even though. Yeah. That's a plaque you buy at Target. That's not actually how life is yeah. and I think also we undermine the amount of not that I want to be like suffering is important but there is a fair amount of suffering that comes with being successful you know like whether it be going to college and you know suffering financially and, and really struggling to learn a craft or staying up all night getting prepared for a show or whatever it is there is suffering there and then the payout is when you're able to do it and do it as well as you think you can. And so that cycle, you know, and I, and I, and we all kind of go through that, I think it's trying to avoid suffering or whatever, but I think it's all tied together. And I think learning and how to get better at something is, is what makes this, the suffering part or the sacrifice worth it. But it, yeah, you don't just like walk into a room and just like throw some eggs in a pan and you're so souffle guy. You know, it's not just, just, and nor should it be that way. I mean, it should be hard. Like certain things are just supposed to be hard. If you want to do it, you need to learn how to do it. At least Adam did say we should get you a real chef to be your, your mentor. I do give the show credit for him acknowledging. I don't know what I'm doing. But (laughs) then they didn't get one and he still succeeded. Yep. Yep. Just like they didn't get a real headmaster. They just, I mean, they tried to, and then. And she couldn't even be mayor. So how's she going <laughs> to? Yeah. The student at Chambers Academy was singing the Charles Gounod Ave Maria, which I just want to say for the record is far superior to the Schubert Ave Maria, oh. which then Aaron Neville began singing right after it. Oh. <laughs> That's obviously my opinion, but it's the correct one. <laughs> I think you're right. I like you. And um, I also want to know, how many students are at Chambers? They're supposed to be 40. Is it still just 40? Because then half the school was in that dance class. Yeah, that's a good point. (laughs) The whole career day seemed over attended. Like how, where are all these kids coming from? I also loved when he was naming off the students who are going to have jobs. They just named the only students that have ever been identified. You, Dylan, Aaron Brownstein, Kiara, yeah. Edgar here. <laughs> yep, that's everyone we've met. Yep. That's it. That's it. That's the only people that go here. I did genuinely love that we got, I'm guessing, a farewell to Dylan, which even though like in an episode where she yes. didn't like speak or anything, I loved that we got her dancing, which was beautiful and like beautiful. Yeah. And the camera really like paying attention to her face. Like, okay, here's a beloved character. Goodbye. You know, like that's what it felt yeah. like. And I did love and that. And you know, and she was in the opening credits as a guest star, even though she didn't speak. But and Andy Ames wasn't. That's not what okay. Gives. Yeah. I also loved in that scene, Christina and Jasmine's little silent. Sorry. From yeah. Across the floor and the thumbs up. 
I'm just amazed that something so small could so successfully resolve a little piece of a storyline. I, I was just like, that's so efficient and so smart. Yeah. But I thought it really worked. I'm like, that's all I needed was just Christina to say sorry and Jasmine to give her a thumbs up. Yeah. I just, I, if you're going to, I, I feel like it's ambitious to do the little montage with the Ave Maria. It makes me think of Godfather. <laughs> um, do you know what I'm, have you seen Godfather? Never seen it. Okay. Well, there it's it's the I have baptism. a problem empathizing with criminals. Yeah. Well, it's not. It's really just. It's it's not necessarily about empathizing there, but um, <laughs> it is an epic scene, and it's it's often called the baptism scene. And in my mind, it's to Ave Maria, and apparent because I was looking this up because I wanted to talk about it today. So I'm not gonna like because people were saying it, Ave Maria is not playing during this scene, but I don't know why I would think it was if it wasn't. You know. Because it's a, but it's a crazy scene anyway. So when I was watching this, while I thought it was sort of touching, I just kept thinking, but I mean, you are playing on something that has been done to perfection. Like it can't, it's, Mm. it's just one of the greatest pivotal scenes in a series ever. And then they, they did this and I'm like, I mean, you know about the Godfather, right? You can't, you can't just. Are you saying you don't think 20 autistic kids doing ballet on network TV is equivalent in quality to The Godfather? As much <laughs> as I'd like to, I can't. Okay. You heard it here, folks. Um, I did think that was a very kind of ballsy choice of song. <laughs> like, you know, like it. it's kind of like how I love karaoke. But I will never sing like Whitney Houston because my voice is only okay. Like I can carry a tune. And so I sing Britney Spears. Um, you know, just, you know, I, I go for the fun. Um, I'm not going to sing the most beautiful song, you know, like that anyone's ever sung because I will pale in comparison. And like, I thought that the girl singing it did a great job. I don't mean her singing. I mean. Aaron Neville singing. <laughs> Why did they play Aaron Neville? Who wants to listen to Aaron Neville? Sorry, Aaron Neville fans. I just, to me, he'll always be the the touch, the feel of cotton. Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. Remember that commercial? The touch, the feel. That's how everybody sings in an Aaron Neville voice. The touch, the feel of cotton. The fabric of our life. It's a lot. It's hard for me to do sick. It was perfection. I thought you were Aaron Neville. What's his excuse, though? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I just, I don't know. It was so dramatic, is I guess what I mean, that it really, like, your scene now suddenly has a lot to live up to, and we've all, all season long, had, like, kind of concerns with this school, and there's just like a million unanswered questions. Like who are all these adults suddenly coming in, teaching them math or whatever that they're teaching. And I'm like, have the kids not been learning math? I don't, I, mean, I just, I don't. They, they may not have. There's no way of understanding that. Cause you know, I think a just a positive of, attitude. Yeah. There's no way of measure. There's no measurement algebra for it. Like in a charter school. Like, right. Yeah. Cause I mean, Mark knows a lot more than I do about like charters and stuff. Like it just, yeah. well, there, there are successful ones. But they are rarely started by just parents who feel like they can do a better job. It's usually teachers who feel like they can do a better job, honestly. Feel like they can use the resources better, administrators and people, you know, 
I mean, the successful ones. But I, I know not as much as Melissa said I know. I know what my opinions are. <laughs> Your opinions always convince me. Very convincing. Yeah. I mean, mostly because I yell and I say the F word a lot about things. He, that is a that is his arguing That stance. means you're right. Yeah. I'm like, you've convinced me. Like, look how worked it, up you are. It usually just means that it's early in the morning and I'm cranky and I've just listened to an NPR article and I'm just flustered all the hell and I just have to go out and let it out. Yeah. So. And then you go work mm-hmm. with the same population that Adam and Christina are working with, only the yeah, souffle no. isn't always going to come out perfectly. We're not, we're not, you know what? We're not spending any time making fucking souffles. That's not what we're doing. Yeah, We're learning like, how to read and manage our emotions. That's what we're doing right now. So uh, the souffle, you know, <laughs> go to the Merc and learn it. Anyway, that's a Lawrence joke. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's pivot to Zeke. So in episode 610, Zeke was given his choices of, you know, either surgery or walk around risking another event. Last episode, Camille told him, you know, we got to talk about it. And he kind of just brushed it off. Now, at the beginning of this episode, he actually makes a decision. I've been thinking about what the doctor said, you know, at the operation. I don't want to go through it again. I just want to live my life. Enjoy every every moment I got left. Yeah. I don't want I don't want to go under the knife again. I just don't want to do that. It's just it's too much. I think this is the right thing to do. I think it's what's what's best for us. Okay. You with me? Of course I'm with you. I'm always with you. Listening to it now, I want to commend the music. Yeah. I didn't notice it before, but it's very lovely. Yeah. I don't know that we've ever had cello on Parenthood before. Except for when Lily was. Well, other than Lily. Yeah, yeah. Not like, yeah. So like I said, last episode, Camille wanted to have a discussion about it. This wasn't really a discussion. Yeah. It was just Zeke saying, here's what I want to do. That was my only quibble, though. I thought it was very moving. And... I thought even though Craig T. Nelson had the bulk of the dialogue, I thought Bonnie Bedelia was the star of the scene, just watching her reaction to all of this. I feel like you could see on her face that she wished he'd get the surgery. Yeah. But only because she wants to hold on to him for as long as she can. But she knows that's not necessarily in his best interest. It just made me appreciate how hard of a decision that would be for both of them. But it does make me wonder... What makes this different from earlier in the season when he initially didn't want the surgery? And, you know, is this a selfish decision? I just want to live my life. Let's unpack that second question in a moment. I think I have an answer to the first question, which is that first surgery was presented as a 95% success rate. And so for him to be like, I don't Mm, think I want it, feels 
a little like, come on, like this is a pretty straightforward thing that will save your life and everybody wants you to get it and it's that successful. But this was presented to him in a very different way, which was like, we don't really think you're strong enough for this surgery, but we don't think you're strong enough without it. It really feels like it's at the end of the road for him either way, I think, or at least that's how he's seeing it. And so it's just, I guess, yeah. how does he want to live it out? Which was not how the previous surgery was presented. It was like, there's a very good chance that this will save your life. And it did for a while, but I guess it just wasn't as successful as they thought. But at least at least he tried the one that was presented that way. So that, that to me, that is that answer, you know, like. Yeah. But this one, is it a selfish decision? That is a great question. I kind of did have a little quibble with them not having a conversation either, only because it was Zeke's idea. If Zeke had said to oh, Camille yeah. back in the hospital, I want to make this decision on my own. It's my life. I think Camille probably would have said, sure, I understand that. But when what he said was, we'll make the decision. You and I, not any of the kids, together we'll decide what to do. And then he kind of flipped the script a little bit, which he's of course allowed to do. But that is that is interesting. He ended up just making it by himself, and I don't think it's what she would have wanted. And so, I don't know. Maybe it's selfish, but I think he has the right to be, because it, it, I don't know. I don't know. Any thoughts from you guys? I mean, I didn't see the previous part, but I do think his character is obviously not living his best life anymore. I think that, you know, the, like walking up the hill, something relatively simple they they've done a good job making him look sickly. He looks much different than he did. I think you can see the quality of life going down. I think you can see the struggle that he has. And and I almost think maybe it is so painful for him to not be able to walk up that hill and he allows her to kind of preserve his dignity by saying this is far enough, which is I I feel like very unzeke like. But maybe yeah. he allows her to do that because he knows that he's just going to have to take this thing into his own hands and it's not going to be a discussion that this is not what he wants anymore. And so I, I feel like maybe uh, what's unsaid in that, in that little scene there um, really says a lot, you know, and, and she's accepting and you're right. Her, her facial expressions and just her empathy and just very much, I mean, it was a very, it was a scene that had a lot of emotion and a lot of things that could go wrong. And it went really well. I thought, because you just have two people doing some very subtle things with with what they have. So, yeah. But I, I think reading between the lines, I could see why he would be making that decision. And you know, something that they've done that they've enjoyed, they can't anymore, and it's just going to keep getting worse. And if he has surgery, you know, he's going to have a long time of recuperation. If he if he can't even walk up a hill, you know. Yeah, I, I found it interesting in this scene and then when she's painting his portrait, it's like he requires a certain amount of time to contemplate these things himself. And once they've simmered and like reached the point where he's ready to share them, they just spill out because neither time does he really say like, now I would like to discuss this topic with you. It's just, I've been thinking about what the doctor said. I don't want to do it. And then in the portrait scene, it's, I think we should tell the kids that I made my decision. And she seems like she is just there to catch this stuff when it comes out. Yeah. And 
you know, maybe for people who have not the greatest history of communication, the fact that he's being honest with her, even if it is just one sided, maybe she feels like the best I can do is just be here and hear him out. And I also think she doesn't genuinely like disagree with his with what he's saying. Yeah. I don't think she likes it, but I think she realizes that there's no great options. Yeah. It's it's probably definitely not worth having a Zeke Braverman fight over, right? Like yeah. it, it, I mean, regardless they have limited interactions left it seems like. And having one of those kind of like throwdowns with with Zeke at this point over what could be a couple months of life and maybe painful probably isn't worth it. When he she even says to him, you know, when he's like, I want to tell the kids, she does say, are you ready to have that conversation? And he says, no, No. (laughs) but but it has to happen. Yeah. It's like, well, that's it's very honest. That's pretty emotionally sound for him, right? Oh, yeah, very. I thought he was weirdly his best self in this episode, even though he was his weakest self. Like, it was a really interesting thing to see. Maybe in some ways what has held him back all the years are his perceived strengths of, like, strength. (laughs) Just being so strong and being so, you know, dominant. Like, look at all the good that happens when he's forced to sort of, like, rest. I mean, when he has to leave the room because Adam and Crosby are being... I think really selfish and awful and notice that it's not either one of them who comes to like talk to Zeke, like not, not anyone who messed up. It was, it was Sarah instead, but that's like such a gorgeous scene. It was one of my favorites in the whole show. And it happened because Zeke didn't out scream the boys and intensify it. He retreated and then someone was able to like join him in that quieter place. Hey, so, um, Hank proposed to me (laughs) and we're going to get married. (laughs) Congratulations. Oh, baby. I can hardly wait to walk you down the aisle. I can hardly wait. Yeah. Oh, baby, I'm so proud of you. Okay. I'm sorry we don't have forever. Thanks, Dad. You're the best. Okay. Ugh. That's a banger. <laughs> yeah. Uh, not to be too cheesy or anything, but I, I do think dads and daughters, especially like when it comes to like weddings, I think that will always get me like, I, I don't know, like just, uh, I, I really, this part of the storyline I really responded to. I thought this makes sense that you would want to get married next week. <laughs> like do whatever you can to have them there. So, yeah. Yeah. It's also crazy to me how the show seems to know which small moments are indelible enough to call back to. Because at least to me, this scene felt like such a bookend to the pilot. Yes. When Zeke toasts Sarah at their first dinner back with the whole family. My shining angel, Sarah. Yeah. And maybe that's a coincidence, but I really doubt it. I doubt it. It felt intentional. And yet it also felt totally organic. Of course she went and checked on him. Yeah. 
And of course, that's when she told him. And of course, that was his reaction. And, and again, those tears felt like they were from both of those actors beyond the characters. Yeah. And then just what a good dad. I mean, him saying, you're the best. Yeah. I think like at the very least, a child ought to feel like their parents like them. I mean, that, that'll get you so far. A lot of people don't have that. That's and, true. Yeah. I like how these scenes with Zeke or involving, like, the wedding, there was a lot of, like, I, I the show may have even opened with the wedding banter with it was everybody. Early. And they're just, like, going on and on and just making jokes and, you know, all this silliness and just kind of fluff. And then there's all these arguments going on at the dinner table. And as you get closer to the truth of Zeke and what's happening, it gets quieter and people start to get more yeah. reverent about what's going on. And, and it's, it's, if they hit you over the head with it, it would not be as good. But I, you know, I really didn't think about it until we're just sitting here and I'm kind of reflecting on watching it and how there's just all, you know, and, and life is like that. We, we get caught up in the minutia and we get caught up in the little things and we get caught up in the little angers and all this. But really when it starts to, when, when we come down to those big moments, we're just going to get it done. We're going to get it done. The things that matter, we're going to want the people there to do it. All those things don't matter anymore. It's going to happen, you know? And I think that this this episode did that. I think it did that very, very well. It, it went from yeah. a lot of people doing selfish things and not taking things very seriously to rising to the occasion and making these very human moments, these very real moments that felt palpable. And that was wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. When Sarah and Hank and Amber are doing that wedding planning, Sarah poo-pooed getting married at a gazebo. I noted that. And I thought, isn't that where Lorelai ended up getting married? Yes. At the gazebo in Stars Hollow? I wrote down, like, is is all this anti-gazebo talk, like, we're not Gilmore girls, all right? We're not going to get married in a fucking gazebo. We're going to get married in the backyard with fairy lights, which is also precious. I mean, that's what Crosby and Jasmine did. But yeah, I I was like, what does everyone have against gazebos? They're precious. I could see Hank not liking a gazebo, thinking it's cute or something. Um, I feel like he just wouldn't think it's very practical. It's like, oh, it'll just take a gale of wind and we're all wet anyway. Why do we have this? (laughs) Well, I was surprised that throughout this episode, Hank wants to have like a big beautiful wedding i actually found it kind of sweet because i wouldn't expect it from him i would have expected him to want to like oh we'll just go down to the courthouse and we don't have any people there but instead he keeps pushing for these beautiful weddings i loved this scene they had in the dark room santiana del mar oh that's pretty about 10 years ago I was there on assignment, and I thought if I ever really get married, you know, I didn't think I was ever get married, but I thought, hey, if I ever do, right there, look at that photo, right? If you, huh? Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. That's not a gazebo, that's for sure. That'd be cool, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, someday, but I mean, it when... seems like a lot <clears throat> right now to go. Someplace far away. Yeah, I know. I know. No, I'm not gonna. You know, but I, I get nice. it. I. It's also. Yeah. No, I get it. I get it. I know. I'm, it's not that I'm not no, excited. I don't care. I'm not. There's no rush. I'm not pushing it. I'm just. Don't worry about it. I don't mean to talk to you about your um, the whole thing with your dad. It's okay. Yeah, you know I don't. Just... 
stone. I don't know what that experience is like, you know, to think you're gonna lose your dad. My dad, you know, my dad left when I was a little kid and I don't really know, but uh, I'm just glad you had him for a long time because he's, he's gotta be a real good guy. You know, because you're so good. You're, you're beautiful. I mean, you're beautiful to, to look at. You're very beautiful. But I mean, on the inside, you're, that's where you're also, you're a beautiful person, you know? And I just think, like, your dad, he gave you that, you know? Yeah. A lot of love growing up. Thank you. You know, I'd never thought of this before, but it's a really interesting angle that, like, sometimes people like Sarah, who have a lot of, like, insecurities, you know, which has been some something that's kind of defined her whole, the whole series, it's kind of because they're, they didn't receive, like, a lot of praise growing up, you know, or they something was lacking in, like, their home life, and they might be seeking it out in, like, like romantic partners or something, and it's just so interesting that I don't think that was ever the case with Sarah, you know, like, the Bravermans are very yeah. confident people who <laughs> especially loved Sarah, you know, and gave her all the praise that you could probably need. When Hank says, you know, like, your father gave you that, you had a lot of love growing up. It just really resonated in kind of a new way. I thought, yes, she did. I had a lot of love growing up, but it didn't look like that. You know, it didn't look like the Bravermans. You know, it, it was yeah. a different thing with a lot of, you know, honestly, criticism. And um, I feel like when I was wanting someone to love me, I felt like it was, that was part of it, you know, like, so that I'm loved, you know, like, even though I know, yeah. I know my family loved me, but it just didn't look like the, you know, picture perfect thing. Like, you know, it's just, it's, yeah, I think that Sarah found maybe a lot of her insecurities and in like, with being with Seth, I, I'm guessing, but I don't know, the whole thing is just really interesting. Like, I don't know, like Hank's insecurities in this scene sort of make more sense, you know, like, we learned a lot about him, like his dad left, I guess, you know, and he didn't have what she yeah. had growing up and stuff. It just made me interested in the fact that Sarah has seemed so insecure this whole time. And I'm like, oh, but she has always had that really stable home life. Not saying that that fixes everything. It obviously doesn't. But anyway, I wonder if maybe sometimes that steady stream of praise feels like something you have to live up to. Mm. Like, good point. Oh, my dad thinks I'm such a great person, but I'm making all these terrible choices. Oh. Why is he so wrong about me? You know, mm. yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I think I've sometimes felt that way because my family, well, mostly my dad, my mom was, you know, she, her own childhood was not that at all. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, she, she grew up in a very loving household in the sense that she was taken care of, but that was because that was their duty. That was what, you know, parents were supposed to do, but it was not expressed and lovey dovey. And so I think she was a little more that way. And I don't know that my dad's childhood was that way, but he, he definitely was like, he was the one who like, when I wanted to not go to school someday, he would call in and say I was sick. And I'd say, and you're not upset. And he's like, they should be rolling out a red carpet for you every day that you come to that school. <laughs> um, so that's kind of messages I was receiving from him. Yeah. And I do think sometimes I think, well, I better, I better like live up to 
all that praise. That is interesting. And if I am not special enough, then I'm like disappointing wow. them. I don't know. No. I wondered if Zeke weren't in poor health and also like if Amber wasn't having a baby because Sarah not wanting to go far away. I think that is a real factor too. Like even though Amber has her baby by the end of the episode. Okay. So she's going to travel to this place that Hank was showing with a six month old or, you know, who knows what, but if that stuff weren't happening, do you think Sarah would be on board for like a destination wedding? Or does it feel like the whole point of her being with Hank is to like show that she's accepting a smaller life and being content with that? Whoa. What do you think, Mark? Because you really like Hank in this season, especially. Well, I don't know. I, I, I'll have to take a stab at it because I don't know what Hank's stance on marriage was leading into it. I mean, I know he's always loved her. I don't know what he thought about marriage, but <clears throat> it feels to me like he might be going a little overboard on the marriage to show how in he is, that he is really, he, he's really selling it. And if he's a guy that doesn't pick up on social cues very well, then he's going to learn from other things. So that would make sense to me that he would be pushing it over the edge. Like, you know, well, you know, when people are really into a wedding, they put a lot of planning into it and they, they put a lot of money into it and they go somewhere really fancy. And this is how you show that you care. So that would be my guess. I, I think it's a relatively uh, benign thing that he's doing. I think he's just trying to show it. And then he immediately understands when she says, like, I don't I don't know that we can really go very far away. And then he's like, of course, of course not. You know, and, and so I think there's like these little pieces in there that show that he is able to kind of understand, you know, where, where these things used to maybe be a fight. These things used to maybe be him just being kind of blatantly not getting it, where he he's understand the nuances of these conversations and what they actually mean, and he's able to pick yeah. up on them. So I think it's a nice way of showing some character development there, and in their relationship too, that they've learned how to communicate, that they've learned how to communicate without her being explicit in what she's needing to say. I was surprised at how quickly he knew she was talking about her dad. Well, and I, I and also this just occurred to me. For the first time, she may be actually not wanting to talk about an extravagant marriage because of real factors like her dad and not because she's trying to get out of the marriage. And that's interesting. Is that the first time? I mean, she's always been, from my knowledge, she's always been afraid of commitment. She's always been afraid of these things, right? At least when people are into her. Well, or, yeah, or I if mean, it's a healthy thing for her to do. Uh, it seems like that character has that. So that that's kind of another wrinkle too, if I just continue to kind of flush that out. She did tell Hank she wanted to think about it when he first proposed. You know, she didn't say yes right away. I think that speaks to that. Mm-hmm. And it's so funny. I wouldn't have said that she was necessarily afraid of commitment, like afraid of getting married. But with Mark, I mean, she obviously did blow that up. And I think there was yeah. something happening there that I mean, Hank played a role, but he couldn't have done it without her. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, she she definitely had to play her role. It was yeah, harder I mean, she, for her to she, go She, on some level, it. I think, didn't want to do that. Yeah. She didn't want to get like married. It's like self-sabotage. It was self-sabotage. Yeah, I don't know why. Yeah, she, well, I mean, but he, and he said, Mark called her on it, and he's like, you do this thing where if there's something good in your life, you run from it, or I forget exactly what he said. But. Yeah. And Romano, or, or Hank, was kept being around. But she kept going yeah. to him. I mean, he was providing yeah. her with excuses, but she was taking them. Yeah. She didn't have Absolutely. to. Absolutely. And she knew it. So 
So that that's a nice that's a nice scene, right? That's that shows some some growth on both their parts and and that they're being honest with each other that they're trying to communicate and understand where each other's coming from and not just be from a selfish place or from a place yeah. of insecurity. I loved it. I I I viewed it as him picking up on what was really bothering her and her not being more explicit about it cuz she didn't want him to think that she was having doubts about marrying him. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you don't want the fancy wedding cuz you don't you don't like me or you don't want people to know that you're settling for me. And instead it's like, "Oh no, I get it." Yeah. You're yeah. nervous about your dad. Yeah. And it also occurs to me outside of like when he took their family portrait, Hanks had almost no interaction with her dad. Yeah. Even when he was in the hospital, that's when Zeke was having heart attacks. I mean, yeah. he wasn't, he was hanging out with the family. He wasn't hanging out with Zeke. Yeah. So for him to say like, you know, your dad must be a good guy. He has to say that because he doesn't know Zeke. Yeah. And that's just very sweet and supportive in the only way he can be. Recently, I saw someone post one of those things that like they didn't write. And it's like some quote that doesn't have like, it's not attributed to anyone. And often I think they're stupid. But so the internet wrote it. The internet wrote this quote. But this one I liked. I thought it was really interesting. And it was something about, I don't know, like adult love as opposed to like, you know, the the kind of love you have, like, I don't know, like, you learn to crave like quiet and peace, instead of thinking that's boring. And you start to think that like, you start to recognize certain situations as being toxic instead of like exciting, essentially. And, you know, I think about that all the time because I don't know, I've never had any doubts with like Mark the way that Sarah had with Hank, like, you know, and it does make me worry a little that she's settling, but maybe it's just, she's like relearning what love is or something, you know, like I love that my life with Mark is really peaceful, you know, like that we just go home and it's like listening to the radio and, you know, it's like cooking or like washing dishes and like playing with the dogs. And it's very steady. And that means the world to me because I can like count on it. It's really safe and comforting, but I still think it's like exciting. I think there's stuff, you know, like, I, I don't know how to phrase it, but like, I think some people may not understand like oh, that's love. Like, you know, like they, they're so used to like movies or they're so used to like, you know, somebody once told me that they think like the butterflies that are associated with like new love, they're like, that's just anxiety. You don't know if the person likes you back, you know, like you're just nervous, like in many ways, like we act like that's the indicator of like great, great love or something. But often it's just like uncertainty and insecurity And I'm like, that's super interesting. And so I like to think that Sarah is really happy with Hank and that this is a happy ending and she's not like settling in some way. I like to think that maybe after a lifetime with Seth, you know, and, and, you know, who knows why it didn't work out with Mark because she certainly had peace and kindness with him as well. But, you know, and, and Hank himself is less chaotic than he was. That might've been part of the draw of Hank in the past was that he represented chaos and now they're both learning how to be communicating with each other and how to be more loving and open and not have the dynamic that they had when she first blew her life up <laughs> to leave her very stable relationship to be in a really rocky one with him. Now this one is becoming more stable. So, yeah. And, you know, maybe there's an element of um, I don't know if this is like Freudian or what exactly, but if she is confronting a future without this unconditional love from 
a male role model in her life. Oh, yeah. Zeke, does she think, I'm not going to have this forever. And if I can get it from somewhere else, maybe I would be wise to take it. Yeah, maybe. Not to say that Hank is her father, but... I. Yeah, a man who loves her and she can count on, and yeah, I mean he does adore her, yeah. and that has kind of always been true. Yeah, but to simplify it even more, you know, she told her dad that she was getting married, and you saw the happiness, and she obviously knew he would have that happiness because that's why she told him. She told him in a really difficult time. Yeah, and I think her hand is just being forced. She doesn't. It goes back to the banter. It goes back to the minutia of the arguments and all these things. She doesn't have time for it now. She doesn't have time to second guess herself or second guess uh, her relationship with Hank. She's got a limited amount of time to get married so her father can see her get married. And so the love comes up to the top. She sees it. She knows it. Let's do it. Let's get it over with. I think that's really what it is, is that everybody's just rising to the occasion finally. you know. And whether that be Adam and, and Crosby, they just quit bitching at each other. Or Lauren just connect, or you know, what's her name? Connecting with with uh, Lauren Graham, connecting with him, or you know, these things that people are everybody's letting it go because they're rallying around this moment that yeah, matters. That's well put. And like and this these are his final moments, right? These are his final weeks or months or whatever they are, and everybody is starting to understand that, and it'll fall away. Yeah, and it's occurring to me now, just in terms of the chronology of the episode. That scene that I just played when they're in the dark room, that's before she knows what he's going to do. And so, you know, maybe he's going to have the surgery. Maybe he isn't. Maybe the surgery will be successful. Maybe it won't. And so then the idea of let's not go far away feels like it's motivated by, I don't know what's going on with my dad. And until I know, I don't want to make any of these kinds of plans. Once she goes to that dinner and finds out he's not having the surgery, he could have another major event at any moment. That's what motivates her to have this conversation with Hank. You okay? Mm-hmm. I've just been thinking, I don't want you to be disappointed, but I really just want to get married here. Oh, yeah. I'm not going to be disappointed. We can get married around here. You know, the um, in the Napa Valley area, there's some good landscapes there. At, you know, at, at golden but hour. Hank, you know, I feel like I, I really want to do it in here in San Francisco and soon, like next week. <laughs> I just... Next week? Mm-hmm. I... I just want to wow. make sure that, um... That my dad is there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, we don't have to go anywhere. I want you to end that too. We'll do it next week. Okay. He's gonna be there. He's gonna be there. Don't worry about it. Don't cry, though. I don't like when you cry. Good pictures of everybody. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Mark kind of pointed this out when we were watching. He has a couple of lines about 
taking pictures. That was one of them. We'll get pictures of everybody. And then when Sarah leaves to go, you know, help Amber when the baby comes, he says like, get, get a picture, you know, something like that. Yeah. And it's like, well, that makes so, so much sense. Like that a photographer, that would be like his love language. Like, like, yeah. We'll get pictures of everybody while your dad's still here, you know, kind of like this. I love that so that's much. It's really beautiful. Yeah. And it's like, and you'll have it forever. Yeah. Even though you won't have your dad forever, you will have a, a document of we did it while he was here. And it goes back to the opening credits and it goes back to the discovery of the album and it goes back to all those things, which is pretty cool, which yeah. I wanted to bring up the, the structure of this episode because I... I don't remember it being like this, but I feel like this episode opened, and I know not all the characters are always included, but it opened with, I think, four or five topical vignettes with each character. And then we went back, and and it was so topical. I mean, I thought all five of them were very, you know, it could be about something complex, but they weren't particularly engaging vignettes before the credits rolled. And then we go back, and the story flushes out, and you have that, like, almost like a crescendo of like the arguing and the fighting and the making things into more than they already are. And then you go to the end and it's just, and it's, and it goes back. I mean, it was like symphonic or something to me. Like it was just, it was like just the structure of it almost tells you that the end is near. I, I, I think, yeah. you know, I don't know. I thought it was really interesting because I, I was telling Melissa, like this episode was really like, like entertainment to me. I mean, there's these moments that are really touching, but it didn't have a lot of like meat to it because it's setting you up for the final episode. And so it, it's kind of getting you ready. But I thought that some of the things they did with, with the structure and with the storytelling gave it a little bit more and, and made yeah. me feel like it was like a real, re, you know, a resolution is around the corner or it had that feeling of, of life sometimes, or you have the, you have the drama, you have the quietude and then you have the drama and you have the resolution. So I don't know. I liked it. I don't know that I'm really onto something there, but it, it felt, you know, interesting. No, I so agree. I noted that it, it felt impossible to divorce this episode from its place in the series. It feels like everything is sliding inevitably towards the conclusion. And like I said, I think that's why the autism statistic storyline et yeah. felt so inconsequential to me. And like everything else is is really getting down to some big, big conclusions. And this just feels like a one-off because you got to do something for those characters. And yeah, I just wasn't engaged compared to like, is Sarah going to get married before her dad dies? And are Joel and Julia going to actually be together? And I felt like Sarah was the star of this episode. I love Sarah. I thought she had great scenes with Hank, that great scene with Amber, that great scene with Zeke. Yeah. And so across all these different storylines, she was wonderful and it was more vulnerability from her and less shtick yeah. than we often get. I'm with that. And, you know, I often enjoy the shtick, but it's really great to see, just have a reminder that there's reality under that yeah. and that she's, that she's a real person. I thought the only shticky part was when they were talking about the wedding initially and she was just doing yeah. that banter thing and just yapping along there, you know, and I'm like, I, it just... <laughs> I know you guys love the Gilmore Girls and all that, but I'm just like, that's enough. That's, I've had it. I'm, I'm good. I do see how someone could feel that way for sure. Yeah. But yeah. I will say that um, Hank is a great foil for her because he, 
He just, he really is. And, and Romano, the way he delivers his lines and he'll, he'll bring one back and he'll bring it back around and he'll repeat himself. And it, he repeats it with such feeling like he's processing it. And he just, he, he keeps bringing, he brings her closer in and he makes her laugh sometimes when you can tell she's not ready to laugh because he'll just repeat something a certain way with a certain inflection because he's brilliant. He's brilliant. Yeah. And I, I, I feel like when just watching Hank, especially in these final episodes um and and earlier i hadn't seen him as much but i think he's on the verge of stealing every scene i mean i just think and he he gives every scene a lot of body i think i think he just gives it more because he's so contemplative and he means well even though he doesn't understand how to do it all the time you know he's really trying and so that he's a good character that trait is so endearing and like you something you just said about like he makes her laugh like the end of that scene where he has, I don't know if it's a lens cleaner or some, that little bubble thing. And he says, I don't like to see you cry. And he's like, I can get rid of those for you. And she says, don't. She says don't, but she laughs at it. And I just think like that it's so, it's so sweet. And I feel like that had to have been improvised. <laughs> yeah. You know, no one wrote that in the script. He takes the bubble and offers to suck up her tears. You're like, that was Ray Romano in the moment going, well, I've got this in my hand. Might as well. I just said it. I don't like to see her cry. So much of what he does feels improvisational. I don't no. I don't know that it is, but it feels like it. And the laughter that or the reactions that the actors have with him, especially her, feel just so genuine, I think. And I, I yeah. think the banter for me does not feel genuine. I think when she goes on those banter things that she does I'm like just stop it stop you know it's just so like like 50s comedy or something but <laughs> but he brings it back in and and I, I think those those little bits of laughter and her reactions it, it really makes every the whole scene better I remember when Hank first came on and I had like this theory that he was sort of like Luke I was like well she's had the English teacher love like like max on on uh gilmore girls max medina and then she has the connection with her ex and the father of her child or children and that's you know seth versus seth christopher. christopher and then i was like okay so yeah so now she needs the grumpy guy <laughs> who's her like one true love apparently but it is very different and it's funny because initially when i realized it was very different it was I was like, because Hank could never be Luke because Luke is a good person and Hank wasn't. And now I think Hank is a very good person, you know, and, and it's cool to have like kind of, I don't feel like I came around. I feel like he came around, if that makes sense. Like, I think that he became better Yeah. and genuinely became better in a way that feels believable. Like he but reflected. L- yeah. Let's say maybe she's become better too. Yeah, I could see that. Because a lot of those interactions between them and earlier in the in the series uh, where he was not likable, she was definitely feeding into that uh, and really not bringing out the best in anybody. Yeah. So, and I think her character has gotten I mean, that was it was her her moment. This this episode was definitely great for her, I thought. Yeah. So, why did she break up with Carl again? Great question. Who was Carl on Gilmore Girls? Who was like a very handsome doctor that she dated? I don't think she had that. Yeah. I just think it seemed like he was coming around. You know, he didn't get off to a great start, mm-hmm. but neither did Hank. Yeah. And then it seemed like they were rehabilitating him. Well, actually, he has more substance to him. Also, is she still super of that building? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you. If I And what's happening with her play? Yeah. <laughs> if if I could do 
anything with season five, which was my least favorite season. I think I would have scrapped Carl and not because that actor wasn't good or anything. I think he was like almost too compelling and likable ultimately. And it was distracting because it was like, what was the point of her falling so hard for Hank that she left Mark only for them to just flounder for a year and she dates this other guy who I'm like, might be better for you than anybody else you've been with. And that, you know what I mean? And and like, they sort of yeah. killed any chemistry she and Hank had in season five. They had, they had troubled chemistry in season four. Now in season six, they have really warm, loving chemistry. But in season five, he was just like sabotaging all her photography projects and she kept insisting, we are just friends, Hank. And I believed her. And so it was almost too effective at that to where I was like, I don't know. I, I think it was maybe a misstep. I, I could see her being really hurt that he moved to Minnesota and then dealing with the fallout of that. But I, I don't understand anything else about it. I don't really understand. I, don't, I, I have a hard time reconciling the three different seasons of their relationship. This toxic yeah. thing of season four, this her almost seeming annoyed with him because he's not getting over her and getting the memo that she just wants to be friends in season five. And then this like really, truly beautiful love story of season six. I'm like, what? I don't know. It's like, yeah. And I feel like it happened gradually enough as it was going on that I went along with the ride. Mm -hmm. And now I'm like, I'm a big Hank fan. Yeah. But I feel like if we were to go right now back to like Hank's first episode, I think he would seem like a completely different character. He would. And I'll speak to and that. And not for the better. Yeah. I'll speak to that because when Melissa initially watched the show, I only saw, I think, this season of Hank, right? I don't, I it was so. near the end. And I was like, this guy's fantastic. And then re watching it at Walking Through the Room and, and just saying, I'm like, this guy's not fantastic. And I thought that it would change my opinion of him when it got to this season, and it did not. I still think yeah. I think that the character development was so good and yeah, so it solid, really and was. it really was like he really did go through some. He had to take a hard look at himself, right? Like it, it's not like he just took a shower, came out, and said, "I'm done. I'm ready. I'm different." Like he he had to admit to some things. He had to look at some things, and they spent some time allowing him to do it. And um, that's true. And, and in all well. areas of his life, with his daughter, with his ex wife, yeah. with Sarah, with, yeah. yeah, yeah, he did. He did. And he, and he had to confront some things even with Mark and even, you know, yeah. and he is such a good actor. I think that he was able to do a lot with that. I mean, they gave him a little bit and he, I think he did a lot with it, but so it, it was, they did a good job with that character too. You know, I, I think it's, it's just the, it's a good example of character development, good acting. I like those kind of characters that, that are like that, you know, and, and they're, you can try to make them, but you don't always succeed. So, yeah. Well, and it's hard not to root for someone improving themselves. Like yeah. we've said it several times, but it, that's why I think people like Shit's Creek. Mm. Uh, to me, Shit's Creek took like three seasons to be even mildly interesting. But then once, <laughs> once it was, it does really suck you in because it's like, oh my gosh, they're becoming better people. Yeah. That's riveting. Yeah. It's in a okay. So Schitt's Creek and Parenthood are both excellent shows. I think that do it in a very believable, gradual way. The comedic version of this is on a soap opera where they introduce a character as a straight-up villain, and then for whatever reason, the actor's really popular, and then they're like, "Oh, we're gonna have to change them," and then they become like heroic, like <laughs> overnight. Like it's ridiculous, and you're like, "Oh." 
this actor was really popular, so he's not evil <laughs> anymore. <laughs> you know. Do um, you have an example? Um, gosh, uh, yes. I mean, I've, Victor Kiriakis on Days of Our Lives was a straight up villain, and then I think he was so beloved, you know, John Aniston, that like over time, I think they made him like. I was. I remember being like, he was supposed to be as bad as Stefano. Is he good now? I, you know, he's like ends up being. Pretty good. He was bad when I was a kid. He was bad as it got. He was real bad. And then, yeah, yeah. Well, and I think also the opposite in soap operas where you have, you're running out of villains, so you have to take a beloved character like Marlena and <laughs> make her a villain by making her possessed by the devil or whatever it was. Whatever it takes. Phenomenal. Uh, it and then have her just kill everybody off like a motherfucker. It's riveting you know, like, television. Yes, it was riveting. <laughs> it was. The idea of it is still riveting. So. Yeah. Yeah. My other example is on General Hospital, Luke and Laura, which is like the most watched televised wedding of all time, I think still. And it was like in 1981. I think it was the year I was born. He raped her like the first time they were ever together. It was oh. it was a rape. And they not exactly a meet cute. It was not a meet cute. He was obsessed with her and then he raped her. And then everyone's like, oh, shit, these two have great chemistry. Let's just reframe that as it was a seduction. And they did that for years. And like they were like a super couple. They were married. They were together. Um, eventually, they sort of like went back in the 90s and like acknowledged it in a way that I thought was really, really good. They, they had to confront it. Their son, Lucky, his best friend, she got raped by someone. And he was so outraged and horrified and was helping her every step of the way. And then he learned his parents' history and moved out and wouldn't speak to them and was just horrified to learn it. It was done incredibly well for a soap wow. opera. Yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, I do think that it's a compelling thing when someone changes and Schitt's Creek and Parenthood just did it in a very good way. Sometimes um, no nuance in a lot of soap opera situations and it was like <laughs> campy and stuff. But anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I felt like the theme of this episode was something that you, Melissa, said very early on in this podcast. Oh, fun. Which was making peace with what scares you. Oh. Zeke and Camille are clearly afraid of any of their options, but they make their choice and they make peace with it. Sarah has to do that and get Hank on board. Amber confesses the fear of having her baby, oh, yeah. but she does it. Joel says he's afraid to argue, and Julia says she's afraid not to, and they both face that and handle that. Adam and Crosby seem to, well, kind of make peace with wanting different things and knowing the luncheonette won't go on as it has. And that even the autism statistic storyline felt like it kind of had that theme within it. I mean, they, they went the Pollyanna route yeah. instead of really saying like, yeah, a lot of people don't yeah. get employed. But, you know, you're going to have to navigate that for yourself. Yeah, that's a good theme, actually. I really loved this episode. I really think that season six is so interesting because it began incredibly strong. And for me, it's ending incredibly strong. And just the 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 middle parts weren't so good, like with all those absences from the, you know, the actors yeah. not being in them and stuff. It just, but like, boy, I'm just thinking right now it's about as good as it's been for me. Can't believe the next one is the last I one. No, that's crazy town. I can't, I don't even know. I'm going to cry for sure. I'm so excited because I don't really remember it that well I know I'm really looking I just remember loving the finale I remember thinking it was phenomenal and so 
I hope I'm not <laughs> wrong about that. I don't think I will be. I really think they they stick the landing. So yeah. Well, it'll just be us. So I guess for now we're saying goodbye to Mark Johnson. Even though I'm gonna like then spend all night, you know, hanging out with him. So, <laughs> <laughs> but thank you again, Mark. Yeah, yes, this thank is you. it, huh? Yeah, you're our last. Sorry that ever. no one kissed anyone inappropriately in this. Episode. I know. I, I think we did break that. I theme. think Adam Adam made out with his ego pretty well, <laughs> and I think Crosby really embraced inappropriately his inner child. Yeah. He's very comfortable. <laughs> you can cut that if you want. No. Um, <laughs> let's see. Um, wow. So we're we gonna cue like some boys to men right now, or are we gonna under uh, the road? We should. No. Okay. We belong together, and you know that I'm right. Yeah. We should be happy together forever. You, you and I. And just fast forward to the. It's the end. Of, no. Wait. Fuck. No. No. Although we've come to the. Yeah. That's what that's that's when you say it. Yeah, I'm out of it now. May God bless and keep you always. <laughs> <laughs> you guys just sing along at home. And <laughs> I enjoyed that. Well, you know what? I'm glad you guys have done it. Once again, I'm proud. Proud of you. Thank you. It's not easy to find the time. And uh, I know that you've had a lot of fun along the way and got to reconnect with people and make some new friends and make new friends out of old friends. And it's really cool that something so cool came out of a time of uncertainty. So good job. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Truly, thank you for the idea. I don't think I ever in a million years would have thought of it. We were just hanging out on the Zoom during the pandemic trying to feel less freaked out. And you gave us a project. You gave yeah. us somewhere to funnel our anxiety in our spare time. Do you time. think we will, <laughs> once it's done, Melissa, do you think we will watch shows over Zoom again? Because I'm not sure that I want to watch Sweet Magnolias in the other <laughs> way. Yeah, I can't watch it by myself. <laughs> I actually do hope that we do that, like that we just kind of go back to doing that. Because yeah. I was like, I don't want to miss Caleb. Like now I'm used to seeing you on a regular basis. You know, it used to just be like, it didn't occur to us. And so we just saw each other when one of us was visiting, you know, the other one's state. And now I'm like, mm, yeah, we don't have to make a podcast, but we do have to watch Sweet Magnolias. <laughs> <laughs> We're already a season behind. We are. We got to get it caught up. <laughs> so did he survive that car crash? I mean, I still don't know. <laughs> I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> I don't really either. Yeah, <laughs> you know, was... I'm going to have to remember. Yeah. So. Anyway, all, all right. right. Well, thank you all for joining us. We will see you next week. Yeah. And until then, may God bless and keep you always. May your wishes all come true.